or efficient, depending on how you phrase it, yeah. You know, that's the same thing. I maintain that laziness is a virtue. Depends. Like, laziness is like, alright, someone's gonna pay you a thousand dollars to dig like a 15 by 15 by 15 foot hole in their backyard, right? And so it's like, alright, well I could go out there with like my hands and a spoon and spend all fucking summer doing it for a thousand dollars. I can rent an earth mover and do it in one scoop. <laughs> right, do it in one scoop, and it costs 150 bucks to rent the earth mover, so I lose some of the money. But I, I saved like my entire hours. summer. Did you save it? Yeah. Like man hours. <laughs> so that's the kind of laziness I'm talking about. It took me a very long time before I actually heard the phrase man hours being used, and I thought it was a joke at first. I only... It sounds like caveman speak. It does. And it's funny, I, I, it's not uncommon to hear it in my line of work, but the only person I heard use it regularly was my old uh, scrum master. And she was the only girl on the team, and she didn't mind the, the gender term. And I even asked, I'm like, you know, I... I, it kind of annoys me. We could call it work hours, and she's like, "No, I think it's fine." Okay, if you say so. It's your, you're the, your preference. I think work hours is less specific, but I kind of, I don't actually mind the genderedness of it, but I do think it would be funnier if they called it people hours or human hours. I, I would, I would, I might have called it person hours or something because I, 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 I don't know for for, like for whatever reason, hours. man hours, and and this isn't usually the kind of thing that gets under my skin, you know, like actor, actress, whatever, like, I don't care that those are semi-gendered, depending on which actor you ask. Um, I tend to just call everyone a waiter or a... Hostess? Host, I guess. I don't know. Like, I... the, the one without the added ESS to make it female, because, like, actor isn't male. It's just default. Yeah, I, I know that there's... For a while, there was a thing where actresses wanted to be called actors, but I so often see them not do that now. I don't know if the trend stopped or if it just hasn't fully caught on after five years. I'm really bad yeah. at, like, getting the vibe of stuff. I like, used to be better because I was on the internet a lot more, and now I, I mean, especially social media, and now I mostly eschew all social media and not on the internet that much. So I feel a little bit bad that I'm missing trends, but not really because I didn't really improve my life much. Yeah, I learned, I forget what it was. I was watching, like, Australian Shark Tank on YouTube. Or no, wait, I don't know where. Yeah, it must have, been, must have been YouTube. And somebody had some brand of something, like dolls or blankets, and the brand name was apparently like a slur for Aboriginal person mm. that my wife knew and I'd never heard of. And I feel like it's like one of those, and I don't think the person who made the thing knew that it was a slur either. Oh, yeah. Kind of like how Wild Bill, like, he, he, it was his book, his latest one was going to be called Poof. <laughs> the, but the mouth frothing, yelling people on Discord. Were they saying that's like pejorative for a gay person? Yes, apparently uh, the word "poof," which I've only it ever heard like in the context. The 60s. <laughs> well, I've only ever heard it in the context of "poof," like a puff yeah. of smoke, um, which I'm assuming was partly what he's going for. Um, and like the people who are going to do like the read-along book for it already bought the domain like doofonpoof.com or something, and like already made the stuff. And then he was like, "I'm changing the name not because I was told to." Like, he made sure to caveat that, but, like, then why else would he? Um, I, I wonder if they've gone after him yet, because he's the next big fish in the pond since... Uh, he's, I don't know. Doing a really good job of staying on top of... Well, actually, that's funny, because uh, that ties in a little bit to the main topic here. Like, yeah. very, very marginally. <laughs> yeah, well, we can, we can... This is a soft intro, because we're... Yeah. Uh, we are recording. Um, this is a different sound studio, so the sound's a little different, and... It is minus Ninyash because that guy's off with, uh, hopefully, uh, drinking a cocktail out of a coconut. 
but we'll, we'll have to ask him how many times he got a chance to do that in Hawaii. All right. Well, that was our rant to get the mics warmed up. This is, uh, it sounds like a mind kill everything, but no, we're actually here talking about this. This is the welcome to the Bayesian conspiracy. <laughs> I'm not Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm not Inyash Brodsky either. I'm Jay Sticky. And we are here talking about random stuff and uh, post by uh, our old pal, um, Robin Hanson. Yeah, we haven't done an overcoming bias post in a while, but, uh, but uh, you know, we always start with our sequences. That's right. And uh, Inyash is on vacation in Hawaii, and we hope he's having a great time. And he was really sad that he had to miss an episode, which made both of us kind of wonder whether he's ever missed one. <laughs> I don't remember him having done so. Steven, you said you hadn't either, but he, he insists that he thinks he did once or twice. I'll take his word for it. I don't, I don't remember any of those. Maybe <laughs> we just skipped those episodes, like we didn't record or something. But Well, anyway, hi, Inyash. I hope you get to enjoy listening to an episode of The Bayesian Conspiracy. I, I wish we had... Maybe, you know, this would be so good to be jealous we weren't here for it. We'll, we'll see how it shakes out. <laughs> but... Uh, well, we got to get him back somehow. <laughs> there's some way to make... See how it shakes out, tie into a tree falling in the forest. Doesn't, even, doesn't make a noise. Like, if something... Is shaken out of the tree. Eh, it's a stretch. First, less wrong post. Purpose and pragmatism <laughs> opens up with that whole tree falls in the forest. Does it make a sound? One says, yes, it does. Vibrations in the air. The other says, no, there's no auditory processing in any brain. Yeah, so this is just a semantics argument. They're fighting over the definitions of the word sound. Like, is sound vibrations in the air? Or does it have to be sound if a brain processes it? They don't have the, the labels. So the word sound doesn't have the intrinsic definition, though, only the agreed-upon definitions. So yeah. that's why arguments like this are the worst, because people don't taboo words or define things clearly. I remember, like, I annoyed a coworker at my a couple jobs ago who was, like, apparently there was a question going around the internet at the time, is water wet? <laughs> and I was like, I, I suspect it would be, because... <laughs> that's a good answer. Like, <laughs> period. Like, it... Because, well, then he was like, well, no, but wet means being covered in water. And I was like, well, the water's covering itself. And frankly, let's look at it this way. What difference does it make? What Did would you, you just make up that definition? Because I'm not sure. But in any case, the I, I just hit him with the, like, what would you anticipate to look different if, if water was wet or wasn't wet? And, oh. he was, and he was just like, that's no fun. And so I, I just, I took the wind out of his sails by uh, throwing a wet blanket of rationality on his stupid question. <laughs> so the dictionary definition for wet is in effect covered or saturated with water or another liquid hmm. but then there's uh the informal british adjective which is showing a lack of forcefulness or strength of character feeble yeah that's, anyway i like it that's really funny um all right so this this comes up because this whole like does water like that i brought up that water is wet thing because nothing uh depended on either outcome of that of that question right but elias was talking here about pragmatic or purpose and pragmatism that like, if you need to know about the forest for any pragmatic reason, like if there's anything you plan on doing with the knowledge, then the answer is no longer a matter of mutual agreement. And I liked his example of the landmines. And it's like, look, if landmines are triggered by sound and a tree falls over, I need to know whether or not the, tr the landmines are going to explode. And so I, I, it's like the second that the answer actually matters, suddenly we're going to be a lot less like, 
stupid bickery over the over the question. This just writes its own comedy script where I'm imagining like, Sergeant, does you know, does a tree fall if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? <laughs> Sir, I think it like it just gets into this more and more philosophical debate. Like if I were I don't know, if I were less lazy I would write that up. But <laughs> so he asks, does this mean that truth reduces to usefulness? But this itself would be a purpose loss, a sub-goal stomp, a mistaking of the indicator for the indicated. Usefulness for prediction is one of the best indicators of truth. That doesn't mean usefulness is truth. And then he adds the layperson example, driving to the supermarket is not eating chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And this is, I think he's nailing home the point about the you know, two textbook answers of what is rationality, you know, epistemological uh, clarity versus like goal optimization. Um, But he says there is nonetheless a deep similarity between the pragmatic and the epistemic arts of rationality in matter of keeping your eye on the ball. That's always been my answer too. maybe I stole it subconsciously from this post, because I feel like basically in every case, those two definitions will point in the same direction. Yeah, I think that's kind of already an idea that's pretty embedded in rationality whether or not you saw it from this post i think you're right but it also makes sense uh for pragmatic rationality it means holding on to your purpose being aware of how each act leads to its consequence not losing sight of utilities and leaky generalizations about expected utilities and in epistemic rationality it's holding on to your question being aware of what each indicator says about its indicati indicati it's a weird word indicati sounds right not losing sight of the original question in fights over indicators and then the layperson example i like when he does these because you know i think that's the thing people run into with the sequences where they're like leaky generalizations about expected utilities <laughs> nobody knows what the hell that means if they're just coming here from nowhere right but uh pragmatic rationality uh, you're is your sort of the failure modes driving to the supermarket may always get you may almost always get you chocolate but on some occasions it won't and the epistemic rationality side, seeing a chocolate for sale sign in the supermarket may almost always indicate that chocolate's available, but on some occasions it will not. This is the deep connection between the human art of prag- pragmatic and epistemic rationality, which does not mean that, they're, that they are the same thing. Yeah. yeah. I'm saying that there, there is a deep connection between these two arts. Um, and that's the end of the post. Nailed it. All right. Post two, the affect heuristic. I like this one and all, all the ones that talk specifically about like a bias or heuristic are always my, I think most of my, many of my favorites. Yeah. I feel like this one's kind of a classic. Then again, I, I feel like I, I don't know. I feel like I feel that about a disproportionate number of the posts where I'm like, Oh yeah, this one. I feel like a lot of them are classics. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's, if it seems like, I mean, I don't know what the, what the threshold could be on how many, what percentage of them are allowed to be classics. Right. I think as long as it's not 100%, then it's, then it's fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly not, because there's a few what-the-fucks in there, but the most of them, yeah, tend to be pretty pragmatic. Yeah, why not? Or enlightening. Anyway, what is it? The affect heuristic is when subjective impressions of goodness or badness act as a heuristic, a source of fast perceptual judgments. Pleasant and unpleasant feelings are central to human reasoning, but they come with their own lovely biases. Um, and he put, has some examples I... Did not include all of them, but just, I think, the ones that are the most illustrative. So the first one is, you have to ship an antique clock. Uh, and there's two scenarios. In one of them, it's this gift that you got from your grandparents when you were five. And in the other, 
it's some some random person gave it to you. You don't really care about it. Uh, so you, the there's these study participants that are given these scenarios and asked, how much would you pay to insure it for $100? And the study showed that people were willing to pay twice as much if they were given the story that you have special feelings about this clock. And so that seems rational at first glance, but then if you squint at it, the insurance doesn't protect the clock. It just pays $100 for its loss. And that's regardless of how much you paid for the insurance. Uh, and then this is more charitable than I would have. I would have just laughed at there, but he said, well, maybe you could get away with claiming the subjects were ensuring effective outcomes, not financial outcomes, the purchase of consolation. That That is actually where my head went immediately. I remember, I think, I don't know what, if this was my first time, if that was my thought the first time reading this post ages ago, but it definitely was this time that like, you know, I don't want the hundred bucks because an antique clock is worth more than a hundred dollars already, right? Uh, maybe. I, you know, it. I guess the the price of the clock aside, it's like no, I want, like I want more. I want compensation because I liked the thing, right? If I could, if I could take it or leave it, then I don't really care if it gets lost forever, right? But I care about the. Uh, if if I liked the thing, I want consolation money to go buy. <laughs> but you you're know, gonna get a hundred dollars either way. Well, only if they lose the clock, right? Yeah, maybe you could say that if you paid two, or I don't know how much you're supposed to have paid for the insurance, but if you paid twice the amount, maybe it's just, no, that's just the insurance company that they're not necessarily tied to the shipping company. Huh. They, they made a, they made sure in the thought experiment, apparently, to point that out, that there was yeah. no, um, uh, you know, perverse incentives there. No, don't get me wrong. I realize that financially it makes no sense, but it's like, yeah, I'd pay 20 bucks for a hundred dollar insurance policy on this clock because like, I would feel bad if I lost it, but if it's something that if it fell out of the truck on the way to my new home or something anyway, and I wouldn't care, then, you know, I can't really they'd be lucky to get any insurance money out of me for it. I could, I could sort of start to feel some of these, but uh, this one just didn't click for me. Like I'm kind of like, it's the same outcome either way. And I don't have any control here. I think it's that like, I just want a hundred dollars to make me feel better at having lost the clock. That you can I get it either liked. way. If you paid uh, the cheaper, the like double price insurance, that's the amount it was going to pay out. Right, but I don't think they asked the people. I, I don't think you could get a different number out of the same participant. I feel like I don't. I don't. I don't know if the post talked about it or if it links to the actual study. But oh yeah, they probably blinded it so that yeah, that's, you weren't aware that there were these two options. That's the only way it would work. Yeah, yeah. If someone's if someone presented me with both options, saying you know, look, do you want the ten dollar policy for the hundred dollar insurance or the twenty dollar policy for the hundred dollar insurance? I'd say the ten dollar policy. Thank you very much. But if you <laughs> if you asked me without knowing or that like, there was another option, wanna, do you want to get insurance versus not? And then here's how much it costs. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that makes more sense for a study design. Uh, this post doesn't include the details of the study design or a link to it, although it does have the. Uh, well, I think maybe it does in the citations. But anyway, uh, another example. This is, one was nuts. A study showed subjects judged a disease as being more dangerous when it was described as killing 1,286 people out of every 10,000 versus a disaster that was 24.14% likely to be fatal. Apparently, the mental image of a thousand dead bodies is much more alarming. <laughs> yeah, they're both diseases. I think he's a disaster for the second one. Or, uh, but, yeah, it might have been. But, that, but that's, the, that's the funny thing is uh, it's, it's twice as fatal, right, in the second case. But twenty four percent doesn't sound as like it doesn't mean anything. Apparently, to people, You're like that, cool. There's a number. Nobody like is thinking about you know they're not doing the math in their head. Well, if it's ten thousand people, then twenty four percent of it. I mean, oh my god, all this. Like you have to kind of present them with the details up front, or at least give them two 
percentages, right? So killing 1,286 people out of 10,000, that's what, 12.86%. And so like for, for me, I'm like, did I drop a zero there? Am I off by an order of magnitude? You know, I, I have to actually think about it, but I look at 24%. I'm like, okay, that's like one in four. Um, if you told me the other one was 12.86%, and I'd be like, okay, that's half of 24%, you know, close enough. So I know that it's half as scary as the 24% one. That makes sense, but I think it's that people didn't convert to fractions properly in the first case. Um, I think it was, well, maybe it was a, yeah, split in two groups where, again, they only showed the, uh, you know, one group of participants, the 1,000, and the other ones, the 24%. Yeah, I suppose. I wonder, judges' disease is more dangerous. Yeah, again, I, I don't know if it was blinded or not. I think that's the tough one. Um, all right, this one was funny. The uh, the airport, or no, we skipped the airport one. The, uh, you can say it if you wanted to. I, no, no, that's fine. I didn't think it um, illustrated a new concept, like each of these kind of is. No, I, I read the parenthetical where you wrote skip the airport one, but I meant to, I, I, I was thinking of the one at the beans. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> study showed that sub, uh, subjects offered an opportunity to win a dollar each time they randomly drew a red jelly bean from a bowl, often preferred to draw from a bowl with more red beans and a smaller proportion, or with more red beans and a smaller proportion of red beans, e.g. 7 in 100 was preferred to 1 in 10. Um, did the drag of this part, like this this example here, is that it didn't say how many times you got to draw from the urn, right? Or from the jar. Um, like if you can draw as many times as you want, I would take the 7 yeah, out of 100. It is, but it's the same probabilities. I mean, assume that... You get $1 potentially per draw, and then you can do it as many times as you want. They're either handing you a jar with uh, 10 in one chance or like 7 in 100. But if one jar has 10 beans in it, one of which is red, I win a max of $1, right? The other one has a has 100 beans in it, 7 of which are red. If I'm allowed to draw 100 times, I win $7 in the second jar, right? I think you're given the same probabilities each time. It wouldn't make sense otherwise. Yeah. Like if it, you're depleting the numbers. It, it's got to give you you know, yeah, some X number of draws based on how many are in there. I, I clipped a, the next comment out of this, but I actually just sort of want to read this whole paragraph because it's very funny. It is. So according to Dene Raj and Epstein, these subjects reported afterward that even though they knew the probabilities were against them, they felt they had a better chance when there were more red beans. <laughs> this may sound crazy to you, oh statistically sophisticated reader, but if you think more carefully, you'll realize it makes perfect sense. A 7% probability versus a 10% probability may be bad news, but it's more than made up for by the increased number of red beans. <laughs> it's a worse probability, yes, but you're still more likely to win, you see. You should meditate upon this thought until you attain enlightenment as to how the rest of the planet thinks about probability. <laughs> Elias does a good job in the supermajority of his writing to not talk down about normal people, but I feel like in this he's, he's frustrated. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to be fair, you know, like I said, in the intuitive example of like how many draws do I get, I totally get where most people are coming from. Uh, Cause I'm not like probabilistically, uh, I don't know, sophisticated out of the box like he was. Um, so I, I, they're wrong and I see that, but I, I think that you might have to have had to explain it to me if I was doing this in the context of a study too, like what made the other option bad. I don't know, I have to think, it depends I guess when you ask me, but you know, it, it's just, again, you, if I'm looking at two jars and like, let's say like, all right, right now you can see through the jars, but then we're going to make them, you know, opaque here in a second. 
and I see one bean here and I see a handful of beans in this one. I'm like, well, I want that one, right? Yeah, that it's... one has more of a goodness effect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not doing the math. Uh, and then I think it's not just a job at Marmies because uh, at the end he has some more examples and just kind of summarized them. Um, some more studies showed high benefits made people perceive lower risks. Higher risks made people perceive lower benefits. People conflate their judgments about particularly good, bad aspects of something into an overall feeling of good or bad about that thing. Uh, time pressure greatly increased the inverse relationship between perceived risk and perceived benefit. Uh, and this is where I said it's not just normies because he was talking about in the finance industry, when judging familiar stocks, analysts' judgment of the risks and returns were positively correlated as conventionally predicted. But when judging unfamiliar stocks, analysts tend to judge the stocks as if they were generally good or generally bad, just like the rest of us. So, yep, this is a bias that, you know, that's what makes biases biases, because they're a bit intrinsic. They're kind of wired into most people and you have to, you know, it's not really like, it's not like elitist. It's just saying that like a lot of people are ignorant about statistics because when do you, you know, get... I was going to say, when do you get taught statistics? I guess in like high school or college, but... You very easily can go your entire life yeah. without being taught it. Or you could learn it and forget it immediately, like people do with most subjects in school. Oh, yeah. Don't really apply it to real life. Ever. I was going to... I think you can totally graduate high school and probably college for most majors without ever having to take a statistics course. But even if you take statistics, say in college, did you learn statistics or did you, did you pass a course, Right. So I think that there's a huge difference there. The good teachers will make sure you actually learn the stuff, but they're few and far between. Um, I'm wondering about the one that said uh, they also found that increased time, that time pressure increased the inverse relationship between perceived risk and perceived benefit. And so I'm, I'm trying to parse that for some reason in my head is not doing that correctly. The in, increased the inverse relationship between risk and benefit. Um, is that um, saying that like... Let's continue... Or, uh... Time pressure greatly increased the inverse relationship between perceived risk and perceived benefit, consistent with the general finding that time pressure, poor information, or distraction all increase the dominance of perceptual heuristics over analytical deliberation. And so in a normal situation, you're thinking, okay, well, the... Um... I think it's just referencing the previous point where it was um, that the high benefits make people perceive lower risks, high risks make people perceive lower benefits. Okay, that's right. And if there's time pressure, like to hurry up and make a decision, it makes you even more likely to fall for the biases, right? And so think it, about it. It doesn't matter which, uh, if it's high risk or or high um, benefit, whatever way you're thinking of it, or what whatever way it's weighing in your head, the time pressure just increases that. Yeah. Okay, um, that makes sense. I I, th I was grokking that the wrong way. I was. I, I th thought yeah, it, I think it's just saying like which the thing we already know is that stressing people out by putting a timer makes them make worse decisions or makes them not worse decisions makes them more likely to just jump back into their heuristics than do the math yeah well i think i think what was tripping me up is i thought that when i read it the first five times in my head i'm like is it saying that it only works one way but no it just amplifies the 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 affect heuristic which you know like he said or like you like you just said and i think maybe he tries to touch on is that like when, when you're under time pressure, that is when you fall back on heuristics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, if you've ever dodged anything on the highway, you know, you, you do that on a quick, you know, kind of pre-programmed action, right? Oh, yeah. There's no thought when a deer jumps in front of you suddenly. Yeah. Um, 
and so you, you just you you engage in like you okay quick here's, here's what i've got to do right um you know often and that, actually this is a thing where was i recently i can't remember actually and i feel like it was a good example but it was something that was like for sale god i wish i could remember because i feel like i really just nailed it but <laughs> it was like um Ah, oh, it's going to drive me crazy. I can't think of when this was because I feel like it's the last couple of months. Anyway, some salesperson was hitting me with something and they're like, yep. Then the offer goes away in whatever. And I was like, oh, then never mind. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, well, you know, but why? You know, it's it's a good deal. It's like, it might be. But the fact that you're putting a clock on it, I'm, I'm immediately out. I don't need whatever it is that you're selling. Yeah, that's only to try to pressure you to make a decision. Yeah. Under duress. I don't I don't make uh, financial decisions under under duress. Um, God, I wish I could remember the example. And I can't remember anything that I bought lately that I would have been offered a deal on. I still feel like it, you, you described it well enough. I know, but now I'm, now I'm just more bummed at my brain for, for having forgot. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Anything else on those two posts? Uh, just that the last one ends with Eliezer recommending Slavic, Slavic? This person's summary article called Rational Actors or Rational Fools, Implications of the Affect Heuristic for Behavioral Economics. Yes. If you're inclined, read I'm that. assuming that's where most of this, most of the study details and in inspiration for this post came from. So, yeah, if you want to dig deeper into that, cool. Yeah, do check it out and check out for next episode. We are doing evaluability, parenthetically, and cheap holiday shopping, and unbounded scales, huge jury awards, and futurism. Those are both terrible titles, I'm going to just say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember the posts, but those are hard to say. Maybe I'm just dumb. This sounds like bad timing for the holiday presents one. Whoops. Whoopsie. <laughs> well, maybe now you can do a postmortem on your holiday gift spending. I feel like this was Robin Hanson post from way back in the day, but like it was get an expensive thing in a subcategory rather than like a cheap thing, even if it costs the same. So like a $15 candle is better than like a $15 sweater, even though mm-hmm. the both cost $15 because one's a high-end candle, right? I don't know if a candle and sweater was the example, but the idea was like, let me get you a really expensive version of this cheap-ass thing rather than a you know modestly priced version of you this know, other thing. I was going to push back against that at first. And then I realized that when I'm thinking about, well, at first I was like, no, I'd rather get the person the thing they want. And not everybody values a high-end thing, but... I was typical minding there and I when I started thinking about what I would want to receive I don't know a big problem with holiday gifts is always the like everybody's gonna like you should, everyone should just get everybody money because everybody's gonna be the expert on what they want or need uh but considering that we have the system that we do um I'm often you know receiving random shit that I didn't ask for and wouldn't have bought for myself but sometimes it's really nice if somebody gets you yeah like $15 Epsom salts yeah there's like you know like some like luxury thing that you wouldn't have bought but like but now you have it for free and then it's like oh that's kind of nice yeah like a high-end pepper mill the, see and that's that's <laughs> the thing right and like but if you were to get them like a 15 dollar bottle of wine right they'd be you know it's like all right great thanks i appreciate it but but a 15 dollar pepper mill like that that's like high end right I'm, i mean it's not high high it's not the highest of yeah, the high end nice. but, it, but it's but it's nice it's probably nicer than the one you have and you would have never you know absolutely upgraded from your whatever you have it's funny you mentioned giving people money because the last time my siblings and I exchanged gifts, I think we all got each other Starbucks gift cards. <laughs> and then we just decided, like, do you want to just not do that again? And we just save our money and buy our own coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the whole 
where did I read this? Or maybe it's just been like said enough in the rationalist community, but the whole like, I don't know, philosophy behind gift giving or like the point of it used to be that like money is like trickling down, you know, like grandparents buy their kids and their grandkids stuff and parents buy their kids stuff. But like, if you're buying, if you're a kid and you're buying your parent a thing, then, then you're just nullifying kind of the purpose of the whole holiday that's interesting the purpose of gift giving i feel like the purpose of gift giving is less about like let me trickle down my resources to you and more about like let me signal how much i care about you right yeah i mean that's what it ends up being but like if if it were more sensible maybe it's because i'm we're we're about to read a robin hansen post that puts me in the mind that everything's signaling all the time (laughs) but uh yeah i do feel like it's more about like oh no let me get you this thing you know and especially if it's like i don't know if you got somebody a 200 dollars bottle of wine like that, that you couldn't, you couldn't scream, you know, a signal louder in their face. Yeah. Right. There's uh, a lot of stuff going on. I mean, if someone got me a $200 bottle of wine, I would think that they're trying to impress me. So they want something out of me. So I'd be suspicious. <laughs> uh, or feel they're like... trying to insult me because I can't afford gifts that expensive. Unless I know that it's somebody like, I don't know. I have like a cool aunt and uncle who are wealthy, but are the kind of people who like to trickle down their wealth and yeah, so that they would, like, buy expensive Christmas gifts for kids that were, like, I don't know, a really cute one was they got us all swatch watches, me and my two sisters when we were little, and they were all really impractical. The one that I got was on, you know, like, those inflatable swimmies that you put on your arms when you're a kid? It was like that, but it went on your wrist and it had a watch in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and I know. It's like, I don't know how much they cost. I know Swatch is a high-end brand, but yeah, we all got weird watches like that. And it was just like kind of, I don't know, kind of the rich person version of the buying the $15 pepper mill, I guess. Like, here's the thing you wouldn't have bought for yourself. It's kind of kooky. Here's the thing you'd never have bought for yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. I like it. Yeah, it was like sort of like, great, what am I going to use this for for a while? But then I like found that I could bring it like into the bath or the pool with me. Yeah. And that was kind of cool. <laughs> the, the last thing on gifts for me is I, I think it was... I don't know, something between three and six years ago, we switched. My family's not that big. There's like, if you include the nieces that are like under three years old, I think there's like nine of us that get together on Christmas. But it was still just like, all right, if we're going to give, you know, if we have to buy something for everybody that's 20 bucks, it's like 200 bucks, you know, ballpark every year. And that's just, this adds up so fast. So we decided we'd just do like a not so secret Santa where is you know a public text chain we just like <laughs> throw together like the randomly assorted like all right you know um you're buying a gift for this person you're buying a gift for that person etc and then that way it just takes all the the stress out of like having to think about Some 20 different stress. people <laughs> it, it, it takes the stress down to one tenth of what it was right now i just have to think of what do i get grandma not what do i get grandma and everybody else this is right? only this is bad when the people in the group don't know each other or like oh yeah this is family though yeah yeah i don't know all of my family that well it's just my it, it luckily it's just the immediate family yeah, so okay. um yeah if, if it was further out because yeah what do you get random person you know if like if it was like a co-worker thing like at a job then it's like all right prepare to get a white elephant gift i remember when i worked at the pizzeria in college one christmas party i think there were like 15 people who worked there there were like three or four shake weights that were exchanged as gifts <laughs> <laughs> that was like the joke gift that year um but yeah. All right. So all gifts are signals. And uh, but like, I almost want to like 
talk about it a little bit more. But... Oh, I'm super into it. I just wanted to say this message brought to you by Robin Hansen, the oh, author yeah. of the next post we're going to discuss. But we can keep talking gift stuff. Uh, I was just thinking about it as we were talking about it, and I realized that, like, it seems like the one of the main features of gift giving that I and everyone seems to really hate is that it's not it's not uh, opaque, like it's not let eligible language. There's the surprise, like it's almost like a um, prisoner's dilemma in the sense that you kind of like you don't always know who's going to get you a gift. So there's like every, uh, there was a while like in my you know teens and twenties where I'd be like, which people in my friend group should I get gifts for? And then there was, it was always really embarrassing when someone got you a gift and you didn't get them one or vice versa. Uh, and then there's like, you don't know how much your siblings are going to spend on each other. <laughs> uh, well, you like, don't know who you should, like, I, as a kid, I was always like, well, I do in fact have to get gifts for aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpa and my parents. Like I, I ended up spending more money when I had a source of income in my teens on buying everybody else gifts than like the value of the gifts I received a lot of the time. That's rough. Especially, you know, as a teenager earning less than adults. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned the one about like the inel- the ineligibility of or the in illegibility of who do you get gifts for, and it's awkward to receive a gift from somebody that you didn't get a gift for because you can't ask somebody, "Do you want to exchange Christmas gifts this year?" Because then the answer has to be yes, right? Because <laughs> uh, because if you say no, uh, it, you're right. Once you pass a certain level of friendship slash rationality, then you can say no. Let's save our money and ha- you know do whatever we want. <laughs> Had a good time but, spending my thirties telling like. By like no, by all means, like nobody get me gifts for Christmas or my birthday, please. Like, but I think that I, I want out of that game. Yeah, I that's that's where I'm at too, and it I think it annoys my parents because they like to try and do something for Christmas, but like I don't have like I got the stuff I want, so you know thanks, but let's let's just hang out, and have dinner and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. the best part. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I feel like if you were to ask, say, like I'm picturing like high schoolers. You know, you ask a sort of friend, do you want to exchange gifts? And they say no. What they're also telling you is we're not that close of friends, right? <laughs> maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm cynic. Maybe, I think I'm channeling too much of a cynical Robin Hansen. Uh. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a fun post. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just the, the weirdness of like the expectation that two people have to anticipate what each other, like not just you, do you have to anticipate what that person wants, but like what the budget is. And then there's like sort of which one of you bought the other one a better gift. So it's this exercise in mind reading. Yeah. Unless you do the thing where you ask, what do you want? But then that's fraught too, because maybe like they'll say, I don't know, one of these back massagers and it's like, oh shit, that's like $200. I was thinking more of like a $25, but now that they said they want that. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, if they say, here's the thing, here's a list of things like, I want. Wait, can you send me a cheaper thing that you want? Exactly. <laughs> That's, that, that would be awkward. That's another thing I forgot to mention about the way we're doing Christmas now is I think the cap is 20 bucks. Yeah. And so it's not like, okay, what, what does this person, you know, really want? Oh, I could find them like a, you know, a $90 pair of shoes or some insane stuff like that. It's like, nope, 20 bucks. Find something that you think that they won't hate. This is, this should be fun. This shouldn't be work. So. I used to have a friend, White Elephant Group that I think it had, yeah, the cap of 20 bucks, but one of the people in that group just always interpreted that as like not you know i'm trying to aim towards 20 bucks but like cool i can go to the dollar store and get a, a keychain <laughs> and i would always end up with his gift and i was always frustrated there's one year i got him a or like i got for the present pile a little helicopter drone 
that was pretty neat. It wasn't, you know, a super high quality drone. It was a $20 like little gadget, but and that was the year that I got a keychain that played funny sounds when you pushed buttons. And like, he was the one that we exchanged. So he got the helicopter and I was just like, can we trade back? <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like I kept getting his gifts like this, like three years in a row. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> oh man. And I think it's always because uh, it would wrap things really cool. And then I would always be like tempted to get the gift that had like the Star Trek wrapping paper or whatever the heck it was. <laughs> it's like so. Uh, anyway, I've gotten good at wrapping presents, especially like, things that are already like regularly shaped, like boxes. Oh yeah. Yeah, I even figured out the trick this year of doing that thing where you flip the gift upside down and like put the mm-hmm. string on like this cross pattern, then you flip it over and you can tie the thing in a knot. Yeah. So I've, I've got I've got the the wrapping skills down. I used to have fun with coming up with bizarre ways to wrap things. I was kind of a bitch about it. Like, <laughs> I didn't think of this at the time. Like, when I was a kid, I was just like trying to be creative, but I definitely like cut up some denim and I sewed it, like the gift into the denim. So you, That's had, to, you had to cut the, they had to get like a good pair of shears and like cut through the fabric, which kind of, I didn't like expect it to upset the person who got the gift. I thought it would be cool, but they were like, oh, I don't want to. You know, like, it's, I find it weird where people are like, I don't want to wreck the paper. And they like carefully, you know, peel each piece of tape off. Like preserve each sheet of paper. I'm like, um, what are you gonna do with that? <laughs> Reuse it. <laughs> I just feel weird, like I'm making a mess if I rip into it. So I do. I'm the kind of person who finds the tape bits and just takes it, like not meticulously apart, but I will like. You open I, it I don't. Yeah. I don't just shred into it. But I'm talking about people who are trying not to tear a single piece of it. Yeah, that's, and, that's like, too much. Fold them and make a stack. Nah, yeah, I definitely like. I I slide the thing out and you crinkle it and throw it in a pile, but. Anyway, it's January. We're past all the gift giving, thankfully, for a while. For a bit. I think Valentine's will be the next one that's got other emotional baggage. Yeah, you gotta wrap. I don't know if you... I think wrapping gifts is, you know, usually just a Christmas thing. But I suppose you can wrap gifts any time of the year. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I don't know all the rules. All right. You want to dive into Rowan Hansen talking about how we're doomed or not? I can't tell. Um, I think he is, but... <laughs> It takes a bit to get there. So the post title is Three Types of General Thinkers. That was on the Ever Coming Bias site. Um, it starts with, ours is an era of rising ideological fervor, moving towards something like the Chinese Cultural Revolution, with elements of both religious revival and witch hunt repression. While good things may come out of this, we risk exaggeration races, wherein people try to outdo themselves to show loyalty via ever more extreme and implausible claims, policies, and which indicators. I wish he would just indulge himself and give examples, because it's so easy to think of them, but... Yeah, I, I feel like that gets into maybe politics slash culture wars, but... Is he averse to that? Um, I don't know. I feel like as long as he gave one good example from either side, you know? Like, I feel like anti-vax position is a pretty, like, good example of... An exaggeration, uh, an exaggerated show of loyalty, right? Yeah. Especially if it's people who've been vaccinated for other stuff in the past and, you know, believe that they work for the flu, for, you know, MMR and all the other stuff that you get vaccinated for. But they're like, no, not this one. This one's, this one's phony or something. That seems like an exaggerated one. Another, I'm trying to think of a blue tribe exaggerated thing. Probably anything to do with like, you know, having a gun in the house is like just asking for trouble or something. Yeah. Just um, complete yeah. anti-guns. Yeah. Complete anti-gun. No, no nuance. Um, oh no, 
Another good one might be uh, like, and that this is culture war territory during the um, uh, the plague, the the summer, the high, the the highest. I'm trying to say the the worst summer during the plague years. Um, there was uh, the BLM protests as well, and the same week I think that the governor of New York said, "No, you can't go to funerals, even if you're like Orthodox Jew." He was like, oh, yeah, totally. You can go outside and do protests. That's fine. <laughs> um, and it's like what the germs are or like the virus cares what political purpose you're out there for. Either it's dangerous to be outside together or it's not. Right. Um, but but if you were to like say, oh, no, you shouldn't go outside and protest police violence and stuff, then that's a political stance, even though it really shouldn't be. It should be a safety, you know, public yeah. safety stance. But anyway, yeah, I, think, I like generating examples for stuff. It helps bring points home for me. Yeah, same. I usually get frustrated when i read things without examples uh i Did, could like you said think of enough of them when i read that though that i didn't feel the need did you name the post actually or when you started yeah, at yeah, the top it's, um three types of general thinkers i couldn't remember if you said it or not i was making a timestamp note for or the uh the title in the url is three types of generalists gotcha which, uh, i guess mean the same thing but not eh, close enough it was a little bit off from what I was thinking about in terms of generalist, but well, maybe not. Well, anyway. I, I think I think your I think your title is better. So, well, well that that was the article title. I just said that the the, the article's title is different in the URL than it is from the post, which is oh, I, I was see. just calling that out. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, there's this rising ideological fervor and exaggeration wars. One robust check on such an exaggeration race could be a healthy community of intellectual generalists. And I read that and I was like, you know, applause lights, whatever, because I'm, I think, positively of generalists. I suppose I am one. Uh, and it never seemed that controversial, or at least like, at least within the rationalist community, uh, I haven't seen very much pushback against there should be more generalists or like more of us should be striving to become generalists. Yeah, I think that that's actually probably a virtue, right? In, in fact, it absolutely is. If you read the canonical texts of the of the uh, orthodoxy, you know, <laughs> learn, you know, plenty about lots of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You never know when, you know, different domains of knowledge can work together and synergize a good solution to a problem that you didn't know you could solve, right? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, I this is just... I, I never read Overcoming Bias, actually, like, unless it's linked to me. Um, you don't like the pessimism? No, no, I just, I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't even read Less Wrong that much. I get the weekly, maybe like the, the bi-weekly emails, yeah, but um, even those, I probably read one in five of them, if, you know, it's like if the title's catchy and or it's somewhat short. Um, <laughs> I used to read so much, and I fell out of it, but uh, I'm still just saving a lot of less strong posts and the, the, the pile of posts that I've saved is getting longer and longer one of these days uh, to just like binge that. Yeah. I need to, I keep telling myself I get around to my reading list, but then it gets too long and I usually just go through and purge it. But <laughs> I brought that up cause like, I don't read a lot of Robin Hanson stuff directly, but this, this whole post just like, if you didn't tell me who the author was, I'd be like, did Robin Hanson write this? <laughs> it just, ha it has his tone to it the it's whole time. hanson flavor. Yeah. So who are these generalists? And, uh, he specifically asked, are they up for the challenge, which I thought was interesting. Um, he categorizes generalists into three types, uh, philosophers, polymaths, and public intellectuals. And this is interesting because I had never really thought of there being different kinds of generalists. 
I mean, it kind of makes sense that there would be, but this isn't where I would have drawn the lines. Me either. Yeah, I was surprised at it too. There's plenty to talk about with the way that he chose to do it. So he starts with public intellectuals, right? Um, the like because he's Hansonian and uh, therefore somewhat cynical, he says that you know because public intellectuals mix with and are selected by a wider public and a wider world of elites, they have to pander more to these groups, right? I think that's just true, though. I don't know. I guess, well, let, let's, because I wanted to think of examples of people that fit into each of these categories, right? Okay. And so when I think public intellectual, I think like Sam Harris. Yeah. Who, I mean, who like... specifically talks about avoiding audience capture. He talks about whatever the fuck he wants to. Right? What about like Jordan Peterson, who definitely is leaning way more in a strange direction because of the people that like his stuff i don't think he's up for the challenge of <laughs> like he, he, it seems like he's trying to you know leap ahead in the exaggeration races right or uh, like i well okay what, what about i can't remember his name what's his face he was like the new carl sagan uh neil degrasse tyson yeah um yeah that like, sounds to me like a public, that, public that's what i'm for thinking sure. about in terms of they kind of have to you know cater to these elites and whatnot because like someone who has a job like as being a public intellectual, first of all, they have like, they're probably employed, someone's paying their bills and I don't know, say they're on a TV network or, you know, yeah, they work for a certain company. They do have to watch what they say about their sponsors and probably not say like crazy controversial political stuff on Twitter. Although nowadays, who the hell knows? <laughs> no, I think you're right though. Cause Neil deGrasse Tyson's a good example of any, probably of these three categories, if you were to shoehorn it this way, He's probably like he's got to be this really sort of um, politically neutral person. Not yeah. entirely, but he's, he's like family friendly. He's kind of like no, yeah, he's basically politically neutral. I mean, you know, to the extent where like politics clashes against scientific truth, he takes he'll take science's side. But um, he's not, you know, arguing about uh, as far as I can tell. Like he keeps his, his I, I'm not I don't follow him on Twitter, but you're right. He fits perfectly with like the he has a job. He wants to appeal to a mass audience. And I think maybe Sam Harris is an atypical example because he's not employed, right? Um, I think that would make him maybe not a public intellectual, though, or kind of a hybrid. We haven't talked about the other groups. We want to go through the uh, yes. guests first and then kind of yeah, then we'll, talk then about we'll, our opinions. Then we'll, we'll grab random celebrities and shove them into each of these boxes. Yeah. Or talk about why the boxes aren't the right shape. Uh, yeah. Public intellectuals are also defined as... Uh, well, by the fact that they use specialized tools or language, um, but their article, their arguments are shorter and simpler, and they impress more via status, eloquent language, and cultural references, and they must speak primarily to the topics currently in public talk fashion, which uh, I was kind of, I read that, and I'm like, what does that mean? And I can kind of get a sense of what that means, I guess. I think it's, you've got to talk about like what's popular to talk about right now. Yeah, I guess. And, public talk fashion. Yeah, public talk fashion is an interesting way to put it. <laughs> Gotta use um, those hashtags. I don't know. Yeah, whatever's trending. TikTok account. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably not what that means, but or maybe maybe to some extent. I mean, like Twitter. Twitter is probably a good example. Yeah. But like, I'm trying to think of like something that was fun and interesting to talk about ten years ago and isn't fun to talk about and interesting anymore. Um, hmm. You know, religion in schools was, was a big say, thing yeah, 15, 20 years ago. The new atheism stuff. Yeah. seems to have largely disappeared in yeah. public discourse. Because it kind of felt like, yeah, like people were kind of forced to take sides on it or were encouraged to, like, um, you know, Bill Nye 
who everyone had thought of as being this kind of family friendly, like public facing person actually came out really strongly in favor of like magic is fake. It, this is science. Fight me. Yeah. <laughs> Which was delightful. I thought he could throw down. Yeah. All right. So then he, he goes on to talk about professional philosophers and I wonder, so I guess, yeah, are they journalists? Like, well, we'll find out. They're journalists in the sense that the habits and tools that they learn can be applied to a pretty wide range of topics. That's true. You know, you, you get the basics of logical thinking and argument analysis. I think they and, can be generalists. Yeah. Because that, that is kind of what philosophy is. Like, it's, think, let's think about stuff and think about how to think about stuff, which seems to apply to most things. Totally. And I, I loved how he summarized, because I think rationality historically has a, has sort of a beef with philosophy or the rationalist community the rationalist <laughs> movement does and there was a little bit of a fight in the comments that i included some snippets from awesome because yeah he says that the philosophers are more are fo- focused more on pleasing each other than a wider world um and it's like yeah they, they want to have a little bit con- of gazing <laughs> yeah con- convoluted arguments with each other that go above and beyond the heads and concerns of us mere mortals right they're gonna sit there and write a phd about or write the PhD thesis about like whether or not uh, like is the concept of a group coherent, and it's like what the hell do, difference does that make, right? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, more willing to use specialized language for particular topics. Uh, they develop more intricate arguments as opposed to the public intellectual who you know wants to be understood. Um. <laughs> yeah, they have to have a sound bite on the news or whatever. Right. Um, they often participate in back and forth debates and tied to their particular history slash. Uh, or the historical philosophers are revered as heroes and models. So professional philosophers try to retain their words, concepts, passions, arguments, and analysis styles. Basically, they they hold up... philosophers called onto the news and they're like, you know, give us your take, philosopher, on these protests of Mm -hmm. late. And they'll be like, well, Aristotle used to say. Exactly. (laughs) The the, the peak of wisdom on the subject is 2,400 years old. And like the, yeah. And we can kind of get back to whether or not we think that's true. But uh, yeah, you had some examples of Will McGaskill, Peter Singer. Yeah. yeah well, I was thinking of Dan Dennett. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll look we'll at the celebrities that. afterwards, because I'm curious about the last category here. Yeah. Then we've got polymaths. Um, these are intellectuals who meet qualifications to be seen as an expert in many different intellectual disciplines. Uh, they learn and integrate many diverse disciplines, which can force them to generalize and get specific insights. I like the wording of which can force them to generalize. <laughs> like they, it just implies that they don't necessarily want to, but they're just like, ah, oh, fine. <laughs> they tend to, they tend less to write off topics as beyond the scope of their expertise, but they also just write less in general about everything as there are fewer of them than there are philosophers or public intellectuals. And they mostly tend to survive on the edge of particular disciplines or as unusually expert public intellectuals yeah i <laughs> i see steven writing scott alexander <laughs> question mark in the document as i'm looking at it yeah yeah i think that i definitely categorize them as a polymath i just don't like these these buckets because i think he's also a public intellectual i think all i think all professional philosophers who maybe it's more of a matrix yeah <laughs> i don't know if you can make a three-part matrix um I mean, like a professional philosopher who's also a household name. I'm guessing not Peter Singer, you know, is... What's the one with three intersecting circles and then there's a part in the middle? 
It's like a Venn diagram, but it's got three circles. I don't know. Maybe it's still a Venn diagram. Anyway. A double, a triple Venn diagram? Yeah. I'm just trying to think of a way to plot this, because I do think you're right. I think that some of like people will fall into multiple of these categories, and more some than others. Well, I'm just trying to think of one who wouldn't fall into, you know, like, professional philosophers. I do think if you're paid to do philosophy, like Peter Singer and Will McCaskill. And that's, um, like, all you do. Well, but if that's all you do, then you're not doing it in the public eye. You're not doing what Hansen is concerned about, which is, like, keeping society somewhat coherent, right? Not, though, because, like, yeah, I don't know if, if you are... Is it, does anybody get paid to be a professional philosopher? I feel like you have to also probably teach or consult, like, be a public figure or write books. So, like, maybe if you just write books... It is the teachers I was thinking yeah. of. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think Singer and, well, I know McCaskill is still employed as a teacher too. Um, or maybe they run organizations, mm-hmm. right? You have to make money doing something with the philosophy that they don't just pay you to have. No one just pays you to ask your thoughts every six months about, <laughs> you, you still utilitarian? Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. So I guess, you know, Will McCaskill and Peter Singer, and I, I could think of other, um, you know, I think Toby Ord is the other main guy who's doing ea stuff um but like or like you said dan dennett is a really good example but he's not in the ea space and that's where i was concentrating when i was thinking about it because you can get a nuanced 400 page argument about why this is the right way to do stuff but you can also have it delivered in 30 seconds right so they they have you know the intricate complex lengthy arguments that they can also have with each other but they also have like the publicly consumable soundbite version mm. right and they write books, I guess, publish papers. Um, yeah. Like, they could give the 30-second version if they were called onto a news show, but it would be a distillation of a long-ass paper book that they wrote or a fully formed uh, construct, philosophical construct. I don't know, there's probably a word for that, but I think that's the difference between professional philosophers is that they stay in the realm of philosophy they're tied to the history as he mentions and that they have these like yeah they they debate with each other um and they have these much more fully farmed intricate arguments i don't know that that's as as i'm saying that i'm like i'm not sure that that's like not the case with some public intellectuals though but again i feel like there's a lot of crossover i feel like there's there's probably so much crossover that these aren't really useful categories that's what part of what made this post interesting to me because I, I can see what he's trying to get at. Because I like the idea of like, you know, having groups of people that can help kind of like keep society, help guide society in a sane way, right? You want you want cultural figures that aren't crazy, um, to put it succinctly. And that seemed like a fun and useful thing to talk about. But then the way that he separated it out, it, I didn't like, because I've heard the term public, I mean, I've heard all these, these terms before, right? Um, but I don't know that these are useful distinctions. Um, you know, really, like, like is, so we talked about Scott Alexander, you know, is he a philosopher? Is he a public intellectual? Is he a polymath? I think, I, yes. <laughs> like to all of them, maybe not philosopher. I put him like more in the polymath category. I think it's not necessarily that like you can, you know, these are strict buckets, but it has to be more of kind of a quiz that you get and like whichever thing you score highest in, but there, there might be some that are real close. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, I'm struggling to think of a better classification system. Although when I saw, I clicked on this article initially because like I said, the URL 
contained the word generalist, and then the actual article is called General Thinkers, which uh, sort of changed what I was thinking about a bit in terms of what a generalist is, because I was thinking about someone who can repair their car and, you know, do accounting for work, but have like a side hustle investing or making NFTs and <laughs> uh, does ice sculpture and like, you know, I was thinking, I guess, more the instrumental type of, or maybe that's not the right word, but no, just some, like, someone that like hands on. Yeah. Does uh, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Where this is strictly thinkers, but uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of other categories that I would add to this in terms of thinkers. And I think I'd have to get more fine grained, like, I wouldn't have public intellectual as a category, because I feel like if you're not a public intellectual, you're not doing anything to keep society on track, right? Because if you are just philosophizing, you know, in email exchanges with other university professors, like, you're not, you're not if trying, you're not, you're not making society more sane, right? If you have a blog if, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're papers or books, then, like, your, your ideas get out there. It's... It's just that you're not, you know, on Fox News debating with somebody. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking even if you just didn't publish stuff, you know, you might publish papers, but I, I don't think I've ever read like a published philosophy paper. If I did, it's been a handful and it was, you know, I've read when books. I was in school. I've read books. I think I might have read some articles. Yeah, I've read, I've read philosophy articles. I've absolutely read philosophy essays, but they're published for like public consumption. Um, you don't like go on JSTOR? No, or any of that. <laughs> just I don't do the philosophy. I don't. I don't think so. I'm a fucking weirdo. I like reading no uh, peer-reviewed journals and shit like this. <laughs> no, that's great. But like polymaths, I don't know. That that also seems like it's not a necessarily useful category for this. Because again, so it's I guess maybe to help make sure I'm doing this right. Like my eye is on the ball of like we want public figures that can help serve the function of keeping society sane or keeping it from going totally off the rails. Is that a good summary of what the goal is? Yeah. I mean, as proposed in like the beginning of the article, they were specifically talking about kind of, you know, fake news, exaggeration wars, witch hunts, um, and people specifically a thing where in order to, I guess, signal to their tribe, people will start endorsing more and more outlandish views. Yeah. And so you want, and you want somebody to come in and be like, uh, "It's round." Yes, <laughs> guys, <laughs> we've we've seen it from space. There's like you, you need to stop. <laughs> yeah, That's a easy example, but I guess what I'm thinking is that the only other one that came to my mind immediately was anti-vax, and we already bashed on them. Maybe like um, was it Derek Chauvin, the guy that choked out Chris Floyd? If someone might like, is all the there was all the you know, cell phone footage and people are like, look at this cold blooded murder caught on camera. And I remember Sam Harris, like taking the unpopular hot take of like, this isn't a cold blooded murder caught on camera. This is a dipshit who was totally unaware that he was strangling this guy to death. Right. Um, like he, he didn't, it, it, if it was, you know, a calculated murder, it wasn't cold blooded. Cause he was sitting there like just shooting the shit with the other cops. Yeah. Right. It's definitely and, like so, the what, case in a lot of these, issues that it's complicated and people want to distill it down to the narrative that best fits their side right so, so the you know people on the cop side are like no this guy was a thug he was you know he had a weapon or whatever the, i forget the details of this one because there's been so many and that's sad but uh and then people on the other side were like no look like he's is that the one that was saying i can't breathe i can't breathe yeah oh, god well 
Well, I think the other thing, the other thing with that is that he was saying that when they were like walking into the car too. And that was one of the things that came out, came out during the case was like, he was saying this a lot. It wasn't just when he was being kneeled on. And so like, and don't get me wrong. And I'm glad that Chauvin was convicted and that, you know, this, this behavior uh, and hopefully this conviction will, will um, put reasonable constraints on like what the police are allowed to do to restrain somebody. Yeah, but there is a but, difference between a scared undertrained cop screwing up and firing into a crowd versus someone intentionally gunning someone down for racist reasons or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that that reasons. And, and I, I wasn't so much taking a stance on how any of that shook out as, as much as I was just saying that like, it's valuable to have, uh, another like a nuanced view of the facts around a case right and so that that's what i picture as like the kind of person that we're looking for to like keep things from hitting these exaggeration uh slippery slopes right and it's like no let's actually like just sit and actually you know non-passionately look at and talk about it right and so i feel like i i suspect neil degrasse tyson probably tweeted something to the effect of all that stuff a couple summers ago right because how could he not um, but I don't know what I he said. I wonder what, he, I mean. But it was probably something polite. I believe he's in support of Black Lives Matter, but yeah, probably like it wasn't as, you know, intense as it could have been. Something that's like okay with the PR, I guess. But it probably wasn't hashtag defund the this up. <laughs> eh, I, I think it would take a while to look up. I'd yeah. be curious, but I bet it wasn't hashtag defund the police. Yeah. I bet it was like, you know, this sucks and this is the fucking problem, minus the fucking, because he, you know, is employed and, you know, works for a museum and yeah um, but <laughs> children look up to him I, I imagine that he he said yes this is a problem and, and things suck um in fact he had that great book uh and this was one of the confusing <laughs> it things called, this is the problem and things suck it's <laughs> a good title for a book <laughs> uh was the adventures of or something of an urban astrophysicist and oh yeah i think um, we we're talking in the beginning and that's the reason we were talking kind of like culture war stuff is because it was kind of fuel to get this conversation going so that's why there was that the warm warm up at the beginning but uh i mentioned obscure slurs and i i didn't know until probably later that i could have learned that that urban i'm not sure if that's a popular use anymore but that's uh a another word to say black yeah and that makes no sense to me because urban i anyone anyone can live in in urban areas yeah um but uh, anyway, so that, that he wasn't saying about an urban astrophysicist. He's saying a black astrophysicist in the title. But, he, you know, he faced, unique, you know, spe- specific challenges to, to, to his professional career. And, you know, just the weird shit, you know, he's Neil deGrasse Tyson and he gets followed around the supermarket by security, you know, like, mm-hmm. is, is he going to put something in his pocket? Like, come on. And so, but he talks about, you know, that stuff happens. And that's just, that's part of his life and it's not part of mine, you know. Um, so I think that's a super valuable perspective and I brought that up because, oh, cause he's a public figure who I bet had a nuanced, but politically safe take on this. I predict that in advance without having seen what he said about it. That would be my bet too. Although I do remember him getting more, more and more political or maybe less, I don't know. I used to listen to Star Talk a while ago, which was his podcast. And I remember he would get political. Um, he had takes on like atheist stuff, race, gender, but I think that was sort of before he blew up way more as a celebrity. And then it seemed like he got a bit tamer, but that may have changed once he got on Twitter or something. I, I've been out of the loop here. Me too. I, I used to listen to Star Talk, And then, you know, after a couple of years, they're all the same. But 
And then I think, you know, they'd be like 25 minute episodes and it was like eight minutes of ads. And I'm just like, eh, forget it. <laughs> I just started listening to the Bayesian conspiracy and <laughs> that took up all my time. All my time. Um, all right. So I'm trying to figure out the way that he put it. He wants uh, a, a robust check on exaggeration of races. And I just don't know if he drew the lines in ways that made sense. Like, I feel like I would have drawn it in the in the sense of like science communicators, and I'm, I'm kind of making this up on the off the cuff. So maybe I could do a better job if I had sat and thought about it longer. But science communicators seem like their own kind of specialized thing. Um, yeah. And then you want uh, maybe nuance. Um, well, I think the... factories. You know. <laughs> love to work for the nuance factory but um i think the idea of a generalist at least a generalist thinker here is that you want to have not just science communicators someone who could be a science communicator if there's a science question or who could give their take on politics law economics whatever i think this might have come up actually during his episode that he did with sam harris mm. um or if not maybe it was we actually got to go to dinner with him like the night before, but I feel like he said this like on a podcast where I heard it somewhere, but like, so he's been on this point for a bit. No, 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 not this, the thing I'm about to say, which is oh. that like, it's, it's okay and should be encouraged and like socially acceptable to say, I don't have an opinion on that. Right. Absolutely. Like so often it's like, okay, well you, you want a, an Academy award for, you know, times they get best... Kaku to talk about anything. Yeah. Okay. But, but like, uh, you know, what, what do I care what Gwyneth Paltrow's take is on like the Israel-Palestine conflict, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I'd be kind of interested to hear it just for the walls, but who knows? Maybe she's very. But I wouldn't interested. think that she would have at least, you know, maybe she does have a, a particularly informed take on it. And I'm just, I, I made up a random celebrity know, who has kooky positions, just but yeah. Being a dork. No, no, you're good. But like, um, if uh, say, I don't know, um, what's what's Hanson's position on? I don't know. I feel like he probably has, because he is something of like a polymath, right? Um, well, that's but, what a lot of like, the comment sections eventually devolve into trying to figure out which one of these Robin Hanson is and him just refusing to categorize himself, well, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. And, and honestly, that, that might be a, a point in favor of like why this is not a good classification scheme, because... The scheme is you know, for other people. <laughs> right. But like, is it for other people that like are, are also not like Elias Yudkowsky and uh, Scott Alexander and, you know, people who like the, the community that Robin Hansen is writing to, you know, they're, they're, if he's not is, talking about celebrities in that community, then he's talking to like people who will never read his blog post. Is Eliezer more of a polymath or a public figure? Because I like, how do you really quantify now? Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how you would even kind of make like the 10 question quiz or maybe, you know, some other evaluation. Are you a polymath? Um, is that the, where you're getting like, yeah, how, how do you tell? Like, whether or not Eliezer is a polymath or a public figure, like my first thought was like, what is, you know, what, what, what things has he done that's contributed more to society? And that's kind of tying a bit back to purpose and pragmatism sequence where it's like, but I don't know what, you know, what makes you better in one category than in another. Cause I mean, obviously Eliezer's both. Um, he's the founder of this community and, you know, yeah kind of still like one of its leaders or top top thinkers that's why i feel like influential 
that's why I feel like public figure slash public intellectual shouldn't be its own category on this breakdown. Because if you're not a public figure in some way, then you're not doing anything to raise the sanity waterline or however Hanson put it, right? Uh, like, if you are just navel-gazing with your fellow philosophers in your philosophy department, like, you, yeah, are, yeah. you are a professional philosopher, you're getting paid to do it, but you're not actually doing anything to, like, make society a better place, right? Yeah, Hanson did have a specific criterion for what they were supposed to be doing. I keep forgetting that we're not sort of just generally trying to categorize them, but specifically, like, if you look at it, I guess in the lens... Hmm. So, in the lens of whether Eliezer's contributing more to fighting ignorance... I feel like he did a pretty good job on that. But yeah. like, did, did he do more than that as opposed to what else? Like be a polymath? I think he's more of a public figure because he's done more of bringing people in and getting ideas popularized, inspiring people to go into fields of, you know, decision theory, AI research. Then, but like, it, you know, um, NBC wouldn't call him on for his opinion about a random topic. They right. probably wouldn't even call him on for AI a lot of the time. Like, I've, I've seen him discuss AI, like, been invited to discuss AI at, like, universities or conferences, but not in the wider public eye, really. Yeah. I mean, so also, that conversation is just not happening much in public, right? Uh, um, it kind of know, like the, was the, for a bit. I remember actually Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of putting his foot in his mouth. Yeah. Then, but then coming back and, like... He, it was after he listened to Sam Harris's episode with yeah. Eliezer Yudkowsky. Oh. <laughs> that he had said, you know, okay, now I understand. Because Harris asked... So that's Nikowski, an interesting case where a polymath influenced a public intellectual. See, I just, I just don't like the... I don't think polymath should be its own category either. It shouldn't matter how many things you know about as as to like whether or not you're helping keep society on track, like sanity-wise, right? I think the, like the you, might, you, might, you might be better at it if you know about lots of stuff. But again, you could be the best polymath in the world, but if you're not doing anything publicly... I think public figure is like a necessary condition for this, right? Well, I think the distinction was that a polymath will have, like, they're an expert and they have deep knowledge on any given subject, whereas a professional philosopher may be a better person to ask to speak on a certain thing or may have more kind of social cred. But maybe that, yeah, that might be a factor for both the, uh, philosophers and the public figures that there's this social credibility and recognition of this person as an expert whereas scott alexander was maybe a much better expert on many things but that's not really like widely known outside of our circle except maybe in uh, there's a few uh fields where i think he's like i think economists and uh psychiatry like, like, people yeah. certainly psychiatrists yeah yeah i wonder like I don't know. I guess if I'm thinking ways to keep set, like, you know, things we want institute. And he, he also doesn't talk anything about like any institutions, right? No. He doesn't say like we should have better well, norms around like uh, college educations or something. Actually, he did link to later on his own article called Toward a University Department of Generalists, which uh, he was posting in support of his argument that comes later that we should fund polymaths better because, you know, spoilers, uh, he seems to be arguing that polymaths are the best generalists. I guess they might be the best generalists. I mean, because they certainly are kind of by, by definition, right? Polymaths know a lot about a lot of things. Yeah, if, if they're, so, you know, the expert in quantum mechanics, uh, you know, biomechanics and car mechanics. <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, auto auto mechanic yeah yeah i think there's the yeah the distinction that a polymath is someone who like has an expert level or like education and experience in this thing but just isn't really like the guy that you think of i guess maybe nobody knows them are they like he said they, they tend to exist sort of on the fringes of various fields not getting the funding or recognition they deserve right i mean i suppose if the question is who are the best generalists then i think yeah polymaths hands down but then the question is like are generalists the best people to help keep society on course and i don't i don't think so not it's, it's not a sufficient condition right i do like the example though of you know eliezer and sam harris in re-influencing uh neil degrasse tyson's position like it does almost seem like in order for you know you to come into some political debate and people to take you seriously, it has to be like, oh, that's Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, notable public figure, and we respect him. Whereas, you know, random dude from some university no one's ever heard of coming in, make, making an excellent point is going to get ignored, like downvoted or whatever. Yeah. Right. But like, if there was this kind of chain of command sort of thing, almost like uh, that, the one thing he does praise the philosophers for is the fact that they debate with each other and they spend a lot more time than these other categories um talking through ideas and yeah they just have more you know communication amongst themselves and sort of they're building a model together whereas it seems like a lot of these other folks are working more in a vacuum or not necessarily in a vacuum but like within their own department at the university or right again that's the thing it's like you could be the best polymath in the world and you could be in the society of the best polymaths in the world but if all you do is talk in your own private internet forum to each other, you're not doing fuck all for the world. Like, I I feel like either I don't know what the, like, either the post didn't keep its eye on the ball or I don't know what the ball is. But if the ball was, like, people that help make society a better place um, through uh, intellectual nuance or something, right? Like, if, if that if that's what this is about, then yeah, sure, generalists are probably good at that. But I don't think that that's a sufficient condition. You could be just really good at um, moral philosophy. Like, I don't know. Then again... Hey, can I stop you? Uh, we didn't actually finish the post. Yeah. There's a bit more that sort of tackles this, but... Uh, and I'm rambling. Yeah, let's let's see what we get. No, I, I like... I think I partially agree with your point, but uh, let's, let's go to the end here. When, um, after he defines the categories, then he kind of says, okay, so which... Who do we listen to? And his answer was, uh, if the disciplines that specialize in thinking about X tend to have the best tools and analysis style for thinking about X, then we should prefer to support and listen to polymaths compared to other types of generalist intellectuals. But until we manage to fund them, they're rarely available to hear from. <laughs> Public intellectuals have the big advantage that they can better get the larger world to listen to their advice, plus stable funding and freedoms to think about non-fashionable topics consider complex arguments and pander less to the public or elites. As for philosophers, and this is the one where you got some pushback in the comments, I'd rather they paid less homage to their heritage and instead more adopted the intellectual styles and habits that are now common across most other disciplines, the way polymaths do. <laughs> like, it's, it's that last line that, again, I this seems like it's the kind of people that he's exposed to being a university professor and I guess in the polymath community. Can I just hear the, the end of the article, which yeah. is just the, the most classic Hanson line ever. As to whether any of these groups will effectively call out the exaggerations of the coming era of ideological fervor, 
I, alas, have grave doubts. <laughs> I like how you wrote this post as part of a Christmas present to... Uh, yeah. um, Tyler Cohen? Uh, or, wait. Brian Kaplan, I think. Or who was it for? Uh, no, it was Tyler Cohen. Oh, okay, yeah. Still, I... So, Merry Christmas, have a pile of pessimism. For philosophers or rather, they paid less homage to their heritage and instead more adopted the intellectual styles and habits that they're that are not common across most other disciplines like polymaths do so basically i wish philosophers wouldn't be philosophers that they'd be polymaths instead i don't know again what's the goal here if, just, okay, if the goal is to have more generalists then yes you want more polymaths but i don't think that's the point well I, I don't think he's going for less of any of these different categories just it seemed like at the end when he was saying who should we listen to it is kind of it depends on the situation and what skills you need like and that, but there's prop there's the obvious problem of reaching, like finding who the polymaths are. Um, there's the fact that they may not be the best public speakers or the best person who's able to get on camera and explain things to a lay audience. Uh, and they just don't have, like there's not incentives to for more people to become polymaths. Like it seems like the people who do are kind of just doing it because that's who they are. <laughs> But uh, they're not, you know, getting any extra fame or money. In fact, probably like, yeah, the, the underappreciated, undervalued, underpaid seems. Yeah. Um, I guess, again, I still think that something is grading me about just this artificial breakdown into these seemingly arbitrary categories. If the goal is to find, as you kind of put in like the bullet point, um, one robust check on such exaggeration races could be a healthy community of intellectual generalists. I think the word community is key there. Like it it will be cool if more more of these like groups recognized each other and just talked amongst each other, sort of the way philosophers do. So, you know, benefit to the philosophers. But then also uh I kind of laughed at the dig about philosophers. Like I, you know, shut up about Aristotle and be like all the other intellectual disciplines, like come up with new ideas or support for the old ones and stop all the jerking off to <laughs> history but i can kind of see the argument for that like if you think of other fields you know um it's not like nutritionists all worship like john atkins or whatever or like scientists will you know like there's some amount of hero worship but like in science it's not like you know somebody's like i'm a devout marie curie fanatic and then like gets into fights with other people who like some other scientists, like science in, in the end is about like what you discover and what the facts are. Yeah. And it moves forward past like Newtonian physics once Einstein comes along. Yeah, I guess. Like th there's a way that you can still honor the people that came before while not, you know, like Freud was a genius, but also he had a lot of super crap ideas based on what we know now. And there's not really Freudian psychologists still in the field of therapy. No, there are run, <laughs> run away as fast as you can. Um, I so yeah, I think compared to like philosophers, scientists do a much better job at that, right? Yeah. But again, I'm still just trying to think of like what group of people or what community of people are going to be the best at being a sanity check on society possibly trying to go off the rails. Yeah, I feel like philosophers and, come to mind. Well, I mean, like, that, again, I, I'm just I'm I'm kind of throwing out these three categories and just thinking of like individuals and or institutions that already exist and seeing if those fit the bill. Like, I like the idea, um, you know, it, you know, I keep mentioning Sam Harris. I don't agree with everything Sam Harris says or, or every position he endorses, 
Um, but I feel like he's, he's like, like patiently nuanced on all of the things that he talks about for the most part. Um, and then you mentioned Jordan Peterson as like another example of somebody who sort of fits the bill. I bet Peterson has his own, I bet he has I his own like podcast. more fit the bill like 10, 20 years ago. He's got, he's kind of gone off the rails. Yeah. So he, he's, I think he's, you know, riding that roller coaster of, of public figureness. Well, and of uh, like exaggeration and, and madness, right? Oh, yeah. He's definitely contributing to it at this point. Yeah. So, you know, he, he's just going to stoke the flames. Like, Maybe I just, I keep thinking like podcasters then, but that's hardly like the best category, but it's not the worst. I mean, like Joe Rogan's podcast has more downloads per month than like the Super Bowl gets an audience, right? There's some really good um, niche podcasts out there. Uh, I actually want to dig more into the, like, there's like various reptile breeder podcasts <laughs> that just are, you know, talking about the genetics of ball pythons. And <laughs> I, th- I think to quote Matt Freeman, podcasts are the new blog. <laughs> and that, that's like a five-year-old quote and so and blogs uh, are still blogs too like that you do get uh, uh, scott alexander's blog is where he blogs and but he also doesn't podcast you know he does get his word out there that way yeah no i think i'm just thinking like uh but to, to clarify on joe rogan like i don't think that he fits the bill of somebody keeping senate commu- like sanity checking society i think because yeah, he's got more of a variety show style podcast i also don't really know what his views are on stuff i don't listen to his stuff that much and i haven't listened to it a lot at all lately because you have to have a spotify account to listen to it now because he got like this hundred million dollar deal with them but it seems like he mostly has guests on and then goes whoa man <laughs> so that, that's what i liked about it i remember this being a thing um yeah i mean like i remember uh having a conversation with, with somebody who has an audience um about like the kinds of of things that should be you know available or endorsed you know and this guy talks about things like the alt-right pipeline you know if if somebody's exposed to the wrong youtube video then the algorithm shows them down the rabbit hole and the next thing you know you get a neo-nazi and i felt like it gave a you know a surprisingly uncharitable view of like the average person's uh like resistance to stupid ideas but uh i don't know well, I, I think that there was a study that I saw that showed that it's not that that like doesn't radicalize people or it's unlikely to, but I, I can't quite remember. So I shouldn't just talk out my ass on the no, you're <laughs> radio, good. I guess. I, I feel like, I mean, some, some, some people no doubt do find, you know, their insane community that way, but like, I, I, I don't know like, how you could have been predisposed to anyway, though. Like... That, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. And the, the main point of contention I had with the guy was like, you know, how do you possibly avoid this? Because like the question was, um, you know, it, it, it came up because someone plugged uh, Sam Harris's meditation app, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, but he's problematic, and you know, you'll find the alt-right pipeline if you if you find Sam Harris's stuff, and then I'm like, okay, so then because Joe Rogan also fit the list of the alt-right pipeline stuff, <laughs> and I'm like, well, if that's the case, then it would be way shorter, you know, because I get it, you want to have a banned books list, but maybe it'd be way shorter to have an approved books list because of everybody that wrote, that Rogan's talked to in the last you know, several years. Sorry, what do you mean? Like, as approved by uh, Sam Harris or Joe Rogan? No, as approved by the community of people that was worried about uh, people being exposed to scary ideas and becoming alt-right radicals. Like, they were saying, like, oh, no. Like, for, so, for other people in that community, like, here's what you can and can, can't explore? Basically, yes. This is something um, someone proposed? Yes. Well, I, I put it in the phrase of, like, a banned, banned book community, but they were saying, like, no, we shouldn't, you know, link to Sam Harris's stuff because they're problematic and uh, whatever, whatever. I was in a community like that that had yeah. one particular person that hated Scott Alexander and 
radicalized or, or like it, it just because they were like screaming in all caps that this person's problematic and racist and sexist and bad and um hilariously linked to two of like scott's most inflammatory articles one of which began with i really hope that the internet doesn't dig this up and think that this represents my views forever about this thing <laughs> yeah. i was like did you read the articles that you posted <laughs> they're not even saying what you think they're saying no they're they're not it's well i guess so i was just thinking like uh i guess i was on the whole bandwagon because i was thinking of joe rogan and then i was thinking like look that means that you're also going to put neil degrasse tyson on this blacklist because you can't if i go to youtube and type in neil degrasse tyson i bet the joe rogan thing comes up because where else am i going to find a four-hour video of him shooting the shit with somebody because you mentioned like you said like you said rogan's not like a public intellectual he's a guy who asks questions and says whoa as like, like a... how big's the universe, man? No way. And like those conversations are great. And you know, there was like a forty-five minute thing that was great with Stephen Colbert, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, like ten years ago. But there's nowhere I've ever found other than a Joe Rogan podcast where Neil deGrasse Tyson sits there for three and a half hours and just shoots the shit with it. Like you Tim know, Tim Ferriss. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I was gonna say as an alternative, uh, Tim Ferriss also has cool people on, but does a really good job of interviewing them and has a specific goal for his podcast, which is teaching his audience to be lifelong learners. And I would argue generalists, although recently did have Michio Kaku on and I'm a bit disappointed, but I'll probably listen to it at some point and see if he gets a better, gets anything coherent out of the guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I should I should clarify too. I keep getting all culture worry on this stuff because we we joked about doing like a mock uh, <laughs> mind killer episode. But... Yeah, since Inuyasha is away, we'd be like, "I'm Inuyasha Brodsky, or I'm West Penza," <laughs> or, or at the very least, I was trying to fit the vibe. So I was like, kind "All right, like, pretending to talk about politics like we knew what the fuck we were talking about." <laughs> yeah, so but it's terrible. That's part of what put me in that mindset. Um, and then like Hanson fits the bill for like you know if you want to find something inflammatory, you can find it, but like it's not really his hobby horse right but i don't know i'm still i'm still torn on trying to think of again i think anybody who's going to be keeping society on on the rails has to be a public figure right if you're not then no one's li- no one's listening to your stuff or reading your stuff so i would say that's a necessary condition or we could change society to like value expert opinions more and then just be able to be like such and such phd <laughs> but so that would be cool right like it would be great if we could just change society but i don't think that's the that's going to be very practical <laughs> it works no but it would be nice respect. if it'd be nice if there was like a well-respected institution mm-hmm. that like people could take seriously the um, league of polymaths or you know like the cdc five years ago had a lot more <laughs> had a lot more credibility right like indeed they, they were saying like look ebola's not a big deal you'll all be fine and they were right you know like n- nobody uh, I think two people died in America's soil of Ebola and then neither of them caught it here. Like, uh, so it was like, it's deadly, but it's not, it doesn't spread well. And right. And you're never going to get it. And that take was reasonable precautions. And that, that was, yeah. Like, don't go lick people who have Ebola and you have to really go find them. Um, I don't know. So it'd be nice if like, there's some public crisis and you'd be like, what is the, you know, this institution have to say about this? Um, you know, I, I guess it would be hard to fund the community, uh, you know, the institution of, of public intellectual polymaths, right? Yeah, like, I'm thinking about um, prediction markets, though, and about how there are, there is a community of professional predictors that have people that are kind of public figures, like, isn't Tyler Cohen one? Yeah, but you'll be a better person to answer that than I am. Again, I, I don't get out and read that much, so, um, but probably, I've heard the name a lot. like, largely related to 
trying to predict, I don't know, finance, uh, elections, and people pay attention to experts there because, like, you see their track record, first of all. Like, they're putting their money where their mouth is or whatever the rationalist version of that. Oh, uh, make, they're making their beliefs pay rent. <laughs> and these are, yeah, that they have that credibility and people actually, like, will watch these forecasts, um, pay attention. Oh, like, Nate Silverman, uh, that's one I was thinking of. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, they'll have their sort of, like, they're sort of public figures, but they're known for being excellent predictors. Right. Super forecasters. But, um, yeah, that was another word I was trying to remember. But we don't really have that for the field of science. We ha- tend to have more public figures who are uh, more, you know, involved in, or not more, but professional talking to lay people. <laughs> people. Yeah, we've got half a dozen main people now filling Carl Sagan's shoes, right? Um, and unfortunately, we have people like Michio Kaku who, like, because he fits the image of, like, Doc from Back to the Future, <laughs> like the, the crazy scientist from pop culture. People think that he's a genius and that he can talk about anything. I remember one time they called him to give his opinion. It was like something about volcanoes or seismic activity. And this guy had like a bunch of people who actually were experts in that field were like, he's completely making shit up. Like, why would you call this guy? He's an astrophysicist. <laughs> Talks about string theory. <laughs> why wouldn't you call an actual expert? <laughs> That's because he's a public figure that people recognize, and he looks he looks like he's smart. That's why I like the uh, the Henson quote about you know it's a it's it should be a respected answer to say I don't have an opinion on that. Like you know if, was... if if there was a panel of like half a dozen scientists and one of them was uh, you know Neil deGrasse Tyson, another one was Richard Dawkins, and the question is about black holes. I'd want them to ask Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? <laughs> like Dawkins, frankly, if they asked him, he'd be like, "What do you think, Neil?" Like. I I don't know. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, he, he at least used to before he went crazy on Twitter. Uh, be the kind of person who I remember would actually say, "Well, that's not really something that is in my area of expertise." A better person to ask would be Dan Dennett or whatever. Luckily, I was only on Twitter for like a summer in two thousand, maybe nine or ten. I want to say twelve, but that seems like it was too late. Mm. I don't know. Whatever. Whatever I think it, was it was. Good in twenty twelve. Like the no. twenty ten to twenty twelve seemed seemed to be like before. Well, uh, never mind. Well, I was, was going to say before people started going crazy, but I was like, yeah, that was actually when Richard Dawkins was actively going crazy. So never mind. Well, no, I, I was like, I was on it for a conference and I went to two of the James Randi, like amazing meetings in Vegas. And I think the second one that I went to, and I forget what year it was. That's the, that's when I had Twitter that summer and uh, Dawkins hadn't gone crazy on Twitter yet. So luckily I stopped kind of like following him publicly before he went off the rails. And I think the only thing that he did that went off the rails is that he didn't, he doesn't realize that you can't have a nuanced argument with so few, with such a short character limit. He wasn't right? really trying either. He was posting some pretty belligerent stuff in all caps. Oh, that's silly. Like, I don't know why. I actually like sort of wondered whether he was like developing dementia or something because it just seemed like such a one eighty from his character that I'd seen before. Yeah, that's bummer. Then again, maybe Twitter just has that effect on people. Twitter probably ruined, you know, his discourse. Um, anyway, what, what were we talking about? I, don't um, know. I wanted to touch on one more thing in that vein actually um which was i remember that it was part of the discourse around uh in like the skeptic and new atheist movement that they were actually also trying to push for there being more like applause for people who will publicly say i don't know or i was wrong and in particular i think it was actually maybe dawkins from one of his books that wrote this or uh, somewhere 
there was this story that was being uh, passed around about this like elderly scientist who was at a conference where they presented some new some new information that that basically like trashed his whole life's work. It was like a, invalidated it. It was a new cell organelle. Okay. I remember, and this was a. And, I don't remember and, the details, so maybe you should finish the story. I, I don't remember the specifically what what organelle it was talking about, but like this one scientist had built up like a long career about like pointing out like, no, there's actually no reason for this to exist. And I don't think that it does. And then they were at a conference where somebody gave incontrovertible proof that it, that this was the case. And I forget what, again, what the organelle was, but this was from one of Dawkins books. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And the, the older scientist, like, I believe like stood up went and shook his hand and said like, thank you. Uh, I, you've like made me realize that I've been wrong. And the thing was he valued like that, that's what a scientist is supposed to do. And th- ideally that should be, I think a virtue of just society in general, like, first of all, for it not to be something shameful to be wrong, <laughs> or, you know, to like change your mind, uh, to admit that you don't know the answer to something. And then like that, that should not only not be like shameful, it should be something that we like, you know, gives you higher status. I think it's like impressive of someone to, to be able to admit that, yeah, I don't actually know anything about black holes but my friend Neil deGrasse Tyson here is the expert you should talk to him luckily we have a community that like enforces that norm so well that I think we're pretty good at it um I feel like it went away in like the larger discourse of the world when the skeptic new atheist stuff did maybe not so much with um the replication crisis in science but it, it just didn't seem to I didn't see it anymore really I guess I for me it's just it's a background built-in feature of the rationalist community right Mm-hmm. Um, like I don't know, a few months ago, I said some stupid stuff about booster vaccines. Um, that I didn't think that they did anything, but it was mostly social signaling. And somebody called me out on Discord, and I engaged briefly. But I was like, "Yeah, I, I mean, I'm out of the loop on all this." But you know, I that was just like my kind of off the cuff remark. Um, and then I learned more and came around, and and I pointed out that this person was right, and I'd say who they are, but I can't remember who they are. Um. And I don't, I mean, I, I'm not on Discord, Discord much, but um, I don't think anyone got on there and said, Steven's a dipshit. Look at how he walked back on his, on his opinion. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone said anything, but um, if they did, I would hope it'd be along the lines of like, look at that. He updated on, on new evidence and he admitted it. Like that's the, not admitted. Cause that sounds like you're conceding something. He, he announced, um, it. announced it. Like again, with Neil deGrasse Tyson and his, his take on AI, or my mind keeps going back to Sam Harris uh, he had some, you know, it, it's a naive uh, take, but it's not a bad, it's not necessarily a, a dumb question. Um, but he was thinking, like, why shouldn't there be like a, a a security backdoor to like your iPhone or whatever um, that like the police can get into or whatever, but only with like the ultra super secret password that they would have to get, you know, with like a judge's order. Like his whole thing was like, if there's proof on your phone of like who murdered you, it shouldn't be impossible to get that proof. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, I remember he had that, it was like in some podcast, he said that a few years ago. And then sometime later he was like, okay, it's been pointed out to me at length that that is an impossible position or like an impossible stance. Like you can't have a backdoor without it being exploited. Yeah. And so, but you know, to a non-tech savvy person, there's no reason that shouldn't be the case. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially given like the example that he was thinking of. Yeah, where I could think of a bunch of ways that that would be a terrible idea, as can probably most of you immediately. But from a 
from an outside perspective, yeah. it's like, well, no, only, you know, only the one person has the super secret skeleton key that opens this lock. Like, why is that a bad thing? It's like, well, because people can, you know, work really hard to fake a skeleton yeah, key. That's not how that works. <laughs> but yeah, so I think, uh, anyway, you know, the coming out and saying, oh, yeah, I no longer believe what I said I believed. Like, I think that's a valuable, that that's a cultural virtue. Um, you pulled out some comments yeah. from, from this post. Before we continue to ramble forever, let me read. Uh what I thought were a few interesting comments. Not all of them, and I clipped them down. Uh, uh, John, I'm just going to say the names because they published them publicly, so I'm assuming they don't care. They're, yeah, they put them on the blog. Uh, Joe Munson said, uh, regarding Hanson talking about moving towards something like the Chinese Cultural Revolution, a few people hit on that. Uh, I do think we're in the midst of a moral panic. Wokeism, especially, has denunciation spirals, but I sense it's receding, as evidenced by John McCorder anti-wokeism selling well, the uncanceling of Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle not being canceled at all. <laughs> and I hope that's true. I'm not sure that I've seen like as much positive, I don't know, but I was going to say like, and I'm wondering when the, this was written recently though. So yeah, this was actually from uh, December 19th, like of the previous year. So this was written last month. I think that anti-wokeism is a popular stance. So like John McWhorter's book, Selling Well, isn't necessarily evidence that woke is, you know, like toxic wokeism is over. Yeah. I don't think Louis C.K. was was uncanceled. He has had two specials since the the news broke about his uh, odd proclivities with, you know, wanting an audience to masturbate in front of. Um, <laughs> and so he's, he's released two specials, but they've both been on his website. You know, Netflix didn't didn't host either of these, right? Uh, um, I don't know. Maybe this person knows more than I do about it. Well, I know more about. Well, I mean, I'm I, I'm correct about the Louis C.K. thing. Okay. Um, you he, certainly he, are more of the expert here than me. Well, no, I I, I don't. I wasn't trying to like sound like an asshole, but <laughs> uh, I um, I happen to know that those weren't available anywhere except for his website. Um, Chappelle is an interesting case because um, Netflix did stand like take a stand and say you know. We're not taking his stuff down. Um, I haven't seen his last few specials, mainly because the, I didn't find like I there was he released like two at a time a few years ago, and the first one was funny, the second one was a little less funny, and then the one after that just didn't feel like a comedy special. It just felt like him up there kind of ranting. I actually, it, we may be thinking of the same thing or not. There was I didn't like the last few specials of his that I saw, which might have been a few before that, but uh, I really liked. It was like four hours of him doing a bombing routine, basically, at a like small local venue somewhere. I think it like went on until like four in the morning, too. So it was just, I don't know. Um, That's not like a trip. <laughs> it was. Uh, maybe it's just sort of me being the kind of person, like, I'd rather see someone's uh, process. Like, if I'm looking at art, I like to see, like, the sketches, the references, uh the, the finished product is cool too, but I'm kind of, I'm always a little bit more interested in like, you know, when I watch a movie, one of the things I do if I really like it is like immediately look for behind the scenes or making of. Um, so that might just be personal preference, but anyway. That's me with comedy for sure. <laughs> like I, I could go on. I really enjoy the the art and craft of comedy. Uh, I guess, oh, I brought up the whole thing with me not knowing about Chappelle's thing because I don't know actually what he said in his most recent specials that people didn't like. I didn't follow the news closely. Transphobic stuff and the ones that I didn't like. That's that's what I hear, but I don't know what he said. 
So I, I've heard that he said transphobic stuff, but I don't, I don't actually know what he said. I don't know, just like the, the same typical jokes that you would get in the 90s about like, and then I found out she was a tranny, lol. Okay, I, I could have, yeah, and so, you know, if that's the case, that's a drag. Um, I, I, I think that... Uh, it wasn't like that bad, it just, it, it, it's just tone deaf. I think that that's part of what he was going for, because I remember seeing some comments about it, and you'd think it was me, like, you know, just talking about how much I like comedy, I would have followed this more closely, but I just didn't have the inclination to bother chasing this culture war information down but the uh like i think that the the most recent special talked about how like this was the one last group you're not allowed to make fun of mm-hmm. and then he proceeded to make fun of them and i think that that was the like the point yeah that i wouldn't really mind at all i think that's what i and really uh, that's what I hear, it's delivered that's what i hear happened in the most recent special i'm not sure what the jokes were so you know it, they could have been bad jokes and so um it's interesting well i, I want to get on like this whole hobby horse of comedy but I can leave that aside and think about, um, and wonder if wokeism is getting better or worse. I don't have a good opinion on that. I should, I should like pretend, like we said, like I'd take it. My, my goal, if we're going to do like a, you know, a mock section of uh, mind killer was I was going to have just unbearably naive political takes on stuff. <laughs> so are we in, are we in the upswing or downswing of wokeism? Uh, I can't think of a funny answer. So I'm going to just off the cuff say, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. yeah i i feel like i personally have seen less of it but i think that again that's because i've been separating myself from it like not really going on social media uh curating my content and more places on the internet have started having what is it like comment gosh why can't i do words um like youtube doesn't just have anybody able to post comments anonymously anymore no, oh i see you can change the discourse so much i can actually read youtube comments now and fa- like i find them interesting again you <laughs> whereas can... before i would have to like occasionally like cover the bottom of the screen with my hand just by just automatically there, there were chrome <laughs> extensions that you could have that yeah. just changed it to, like to to the word puppies over and over and stuff like that <laughs> yeah. um, youtube got rid of the downvote uh display number hmm and like the little slider that showed the ratio of downvotes to upvotes. I never found that to be terribly useful, so I kind of don't care. But I hundred percent did. If I'm googling like how do, or if I'm if I'm searching YouTube for like how do uh, I fix this thing, you know, or how do I replace the fuses on my car or whatever. And if there's a video with a fifty percent downvote ratio, I want to know that. I want to find the one that ninety nine percent of people liked <laughs> because uh, I won't know until I try the thing. And if everyone hated this video, then like. I, I, I'm going to break my car because I did it wrong. I don't know. That seems like a weird move. And I don't know what they were thinking, but maybe because it mm, stopped some videos from being popular. You know, some videos probably got brigaded, you know? Yeah. Like, I wonder if it would be helpful to replace that with how useful did you find this video? Yeah. People would just put, you know, no Which, for like, they, they, they would still, they would vote the same, right? Yeah. But I feel like, and I might, yeah, again, I'm, here, I'm making shit up, but they probably got rid of it because of more culture war style stuff like people using it to cyber bully people or yeah. um artificially inflating or deflating somebody's views that they don't agree with i yeah. doubt that well then again i mean i don't see there being as much of a need to do this maybe i'm wrong but you know how like in the app store people would buy likes and comments to like oh yeah yeah you know their app above the others and the listing and it's like yeah so you could still you know game like this was the most useful video but i'm like i I don't know how much like 
incentive there's for people to do that how much revenue they may or may not get from like how to repair your car tire i don't know maybe it's a lot maybe maybe that was part of the problem it still shows the upvote count <laughs> that's useless without the context of the downvote <laughs> that, that that's the thing right so it still says how many people liked this video but it doesn't say how many people disliked it i guess it's not completely useless but yeah. no it's some indicator of how popular it was right yeah you know but it's like i don't know it that was the why did i bring that up oh because we were talking about ideas hmm, i can't remember how they came up actually anyway what's the next comment that was in this uh this thread here uh the commenter jonas said exaggeration races occur because thought leaders are afraid of losing their position in the insider circle due to excessive competition this is mostly because the internet made discourse much more competitive and open which they put in a parentheses not an unalloyed good anything that increases friction in communication and competition or reduces transparency or virality, or reduces the ultimate rewards to the big winner, will reduce current exaggeration races. And I think that's a good point, but I, and it kind of actually might relate to the YouTube comments thing, because I'm trying to think how would you do that though? Like, I think it would necessarily involve decreasing people's incentive to do discourse. So Jonas is saying that anything that increases friction communication will reduce the current exaggeration races? Um, what, like, so we were saying that these exaggeration races are able to exist because it's so easy for anybody to go and rant forever and, you know, do things like manipulate upvotes or downvotes and have sock puppets and... That's true. Okay, yeah, this, this actually, I think there's a good example of this. It seems like I'm just going to keep pinging Sam Harris over and over. Um, he was talking to somebody whenever, like, the subject of, like, you know, populist engagement comes up. He talks about how bad Twitter is, but how he turned around, like his, his experience on Twitter got immediately 95% better overnight when he filtered, like there's apparently an option that you can ignore notifications if they come from people that don't have verified accounts mm. or rather don't have, um, cause it doesn't have to have like the check mark of like, I'm a famous person, but it, like they haven't registered their phone number or something like mm. it's not attached as much to their real life identity. Or if they don't even have a, like a profile picture or something, like, like it's just one of the egg shaped things. Definitely the thing that improved YouTube comments was having to comment with your your account and your, your name. Account. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the anonymity aspect, definitely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that that actually is a good point because you're going to be less of a toxic shitbag if people know who you are. Um, yeah, and um, but you'll even also sort I of think restricting access to the like quote unquote inner circle or insider circle. Or like maybe that's the same thing. I mean, maybe it's like having the verified account, but like maybe having a yes, I'm a verified professor of economics. Um, yeah, credential attached to your username or something. I don't know. I could see that being handy. Yeah, I think um, if that if it's that kind of hurdle that you have to overcome, like yes, you have to actually log in to comment. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think because uh, that that will filter out people who are just running around making noise, mm -hmm. right? Um, Oh, I did have to make a Twitter account recently and I did have to register my phone number with it because I wanted to make there. I've got a, a Python script running on my computer for the last several, for like the last week and a half monitoring a handful of Twitter accounts to, to tell me when there's PS five drops. <laughs> and it's amazing. They're selling like BTS tickets. It's so yeah. annoying. Um, and I, I mean, I'm, I've got, I, I'm, I'm having, a. You know, my machine monitor the web for like the news the instant it comes out, and the second it does, I go to the website and it's already like too bloated to let me add it to my cart. Um, trying to buy a house in Denver. 
Yeah, almost. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, I remember because before I could get a, a bearer token, I had to authenticate my phone number. So like mm-hmm. I have an account that has no tweets or followers or is not following anybody. So I can uh, have a bearer token to hit their public API. Um, how did that come up? Because we're talking about, yes. So hot take <laughs> or not hot take, but quick take increasing friction to being able to engage in public conversation. Good thing. Uh, if it's, that's a, I could, I could so easily argue the other side of that, but I'm going to just go ahead and stick to my hot take or my quick take. Yeah. Have, have strong opinions. That's right. And, uh, I would sort of, I would say I agree depending on the context, if this is an, you know, explicitly intellectual conversation about what should we do about this policy, then we don't want randos like being able to get access to it as much. And we don't want them being able to shout over people who are lawyers or whatever, but um, not, not everywhere across the internet. I think open, more competitive, open communication, as this person puts it, is, I, al- is also valuable. Yeah. I want to give a good example of somebody who's not a generalist, but is really good at like nuance and keeping their eye on like the ball. And that's the YouTube channel, Legal Eagle. Hmm. Um, I watched like all of his videos breaking down like a lot of like the, the hot news topics of um, who was that guy that just uh, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, was just acquitted like a month or two ago. Right. He was the guy that went to a BLM protest and uh, his, like he was involved in the shooting of a couple people. And I think the death of one mm-hmm. um, and uh, all, all that the legal legal guy does is talk about the context of all the actions in in the, the eye of the law and so he's not like taking a stance like a moral position on mm-hmm. it just he, explaining the facts of the case and yeah what and the law says so he's like and he'll do them like he'll do like before videos and then sometimes follow-ups like when when things are done happening but like he correctly predicted that like Kyle Rittenhouse will probably get off because this is a great example of like these handful of statutes that stand in the state or whatever regarding self-defense and retreat and all that and whatever. Um, but so I guess I wanted to bring that up as a counterexample to generalists. Cause that's the next comment talks about generalists. Cause I think that he, I think that that sort of focus is really valuable. Oh, and we had on um, Justin Marchant who did some blog posts or, or, or uh, Reddit posts on the culture war Mondays on the, uh, um, the Mott r slash the Mott. And uh, about the Rittenhouse or um, Derek Chauvin trial, the guy who killed George Floyd. Uh Um, And he did the same thing. He was talking about just the legal aspect of stuff, you know. So when the when the verdict comes out, it's not like a surprise because it's like, well, here's where it looked like things were going to go because it's not, you know, the courthouse. I'm rambling at that point. But anyway, non-journalists, I think, can make important contributions. Yeah. um, Sort of the next comment was uh, Peter Gertz says, I'm not sure generalists make the problem better. They may well make the problem worse. Specialists, <laughs> I think you're talking about, tend to operate in a relatively rarefied atmosphere, and their reasons for accepting or rejecting particular views tend to respond to narrow issues in the specialty, which may be less correlated with broader ideological viewpoints. On the other hand, generalists are more likely to see the issue in a particular field through a more general ideological lens, and risk increasing the correlation between people's views on various subjects, which, uh, I mean, I was surprised. I mean, I wasn't surprised to see somebody disagreeing with the premise of the article because that's what people do in the comment sections, but, uh, and that's a good thing to do. 
I was a bit, uh, but I, I was sort of like, huh, what, what do people have against generalists? And I mean, like, it seems obvious to me that a specialist, if you can find a specialist for the thing that you're looking for, cool. But a generalist has sort of a different role there. Like, I don't think that they're competing with each other or they, they shouldn't be competing with each other. I agree. I think they're, 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 they're filling different roles for sure. Like, you know, I don't go to the legal legal YouTube channel to learn whether or not, uh, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse did the right thing or not. Right. Um, like I don't, I'll, I go there to see if he broke, if he broke the law in a way that'll get him convicted. Cause that's what I'm curious about. If I go to, you know, legal legal, if I, if I want to know if he did anything right or wrong, I go to my, you know, local philosophers and ask <laughs> them. Right. Uh, or I ask myself, but, uh, yeah, I wonder. I think I, I disagree that, and I'm not sure what his support or, you know, why this commenter was saying that, uh, he thinks generalists would be more likely to be, I guess, become ideological. Yeah. yeah. Like the legal legal is a good example of, I guess, a specialist who you said is quite the opposite or, well, he's talking about generalists, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see why. I don't see why that would be the case. Yeah, me either. I, I certainly, I mean, I think that if you're a specialist, you're just as prone to being mm-hmm. ideologically driven as you were if you're a generalist. Um, I'm curious what substantiating evidence he has for that claim, too. Um, if I squint, I can kind of imagine it. Like, if you're a generalist, you probably have shallower knowledge on different subjects, so you might be, I don't know, skimming stuff off the top, and you haven't gotten, like, dug real deep into it. No, like... But I, I don't know. Um, like I, I said, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate a bit. I, I, I don't find that to be very compelling. Yeah, that's interesting, though. You're right. Like, if you're... If you feel like you're supposed to have a take on something, you might just fall back on your quick heuristic of like, well, what's my political belief on this, right? Um, or what 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 fits with my ideological framework? Whereas like you're a specialist, it's like, well, my ideologically, I'm opposed to this, but I happen to know that this is the answer. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting thought. Um, yeah, I feel like it really kind of just comes down to the individual, because like you said, there's specialists are no, as far as I can tell, less likely to become ideologues. Like it just, you know, is a matter of knowing that this person is fair, unbiased, and they know about this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and they're either an expert or they're, yeah. Or like they might be sane on like a bunch of topics except for one or two. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of that. But like, it seems entirely reasonable that somebody could have... People compartmentalize. Like you, you get all kinds of expert scientists who also are like flat earthers or something. Like ridiculous things like that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Let me see this last comment here. Hayden Thomas Rose. It seems to me that philosophers can be more independently minded in part because their heritage or because of their heritage. Um, Few other disciplines provide models of critical heroic truth seeking for students to imitate. Uh, If you say so. Uh, (laughs) However, most parenthetically all question mark successful religions provide models and gurus for students to imitate. Um, you yourself probably have more value as a model gadfly for others to imitate than anyone else or than anything else. And like referring to Robin Hanson himself. Yeah. And then that was when the comment section kind of developed into trying to figure out which one of these Robin Hanson himself was. Uh, a couple of people also kind of, I, I think that this commenter, Hayden Thomas, I'm not positive, but I think they are a philosopher or maybe or SK, one of them anyway. So it was just kind of like, hey, <laughs> wait a minute. Uh but also, I think that I think there's a point there. Um, 
I think Hanson hit it well. He says, you know, sure, stay aware of history. That's different from worshiping particular ancient philosophers. And I think he's absolutely right. Um, That is one thing that I always find interesting with philosophy, where, like, you'd be talking to somebody again in 2022 and ask them, like, hey, you know, here's my life challenge that I'm trying to deal with right now. And they'll be like, well, in 400 BC, Epicurus said, and it's like, you know, have we not... I guess why lean on the one person you know, who founded the thing? Like, and, and Aristotle is a great example too. I think that he had said that men have more teeth than women, <laughs> and it's like he could have done this by he could have falsified that by looking into Mrs. Aristotle's mouth and counting her teeth, right? Like, he, he but, but uh, uh, I think that like it's sort of the same thing about people being compartmentalized. It's like ancient or like whatever wisdom is wisdom. Uh, I still get a ton of value out of like the writings of Marcus Aurelius uh and like unlike maybe some of these other disciplines um there's kind of a uh, I was gonna say survivor bias which makes it sound bad but like the ideas that have stuck around have stuck around because people still find them poignant and useful and kind of the fact that they have like you know like and it's it's ideas like how should one live or or moral philosophy questions so like they're not really ones that you can prove with facts. You can bring facts in, like I like you know bringing psychology in to show like these things tend to make people happy versus these others. But it's a, uh, I think that there is an important aspect to the historicalness um, of philosophy of people passing down I, like the best ideas. It just seems weird to hold on to the progenitors of the ideas like they're this remarkable thing and keep referencing them, like. The only example I can think of like that in science is uh, um, Charles Darwin. And the only reason that he comes up is because he's, you know, because evolution is contentious in some circles. And so people bring up Darwin as like, you know, more more like scientists bring him up to defend him from, from attackers, from the religious, you know, people who say that evolution's fake, right? Yeah. Um, there was a while where people were calling uh, people Darwinists also, like, basically, you know, people who believe in evolution and that was being used as a pejorative. I don't know. I haven't seen that anymore. Yeah, that probably, that probably fell out of fashion. Still use that. But. But, but you might still find Platonists or, you know, um, Aristotelian virtue ethicists. And it's like, I feel like virtue ethics must have come some way in the last 2,000 years, right? Um, uh, and, it, and if it hasn't evolved at all in the last 2,000 years, I sort of doubt that this guy 2,000 years ago solved the problem perfectly, right? It's possible. And don't get me wrong. I, I I love philosophy. I I I I enjoy it a lot. I just I uh, it is that weird hero worship that I do think is kind of it, it's a it's a weird quirk of the field, yeah. right? Um, but it is kind of fun. You know, you point out that like uh, or like one could point out that uh, Jeremy Bentham, the guy who was like one of the predecessor thinkers to utilitarianism, who I think John Stuart Mill gets the credit for. Or no, wait, yeah. John Stuart Mill's the utilitarian, right? That sounds right. Uh, I think so. Yeah. He is also the libertarian. Um, but in any case, uh, Jeremy Bentham was one of the early uh, utilitarians and was unpopular at the time because he, he made an argument defending that like gay people aren't doing anything wrong. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that was super un- that was super unpopular 400 years ago. Um, but, but he looked at it from the lens of like, what's the harm? And I'm destroying marriage. Well, the, well, but because that actually doesn't hurt anybody. Just... No, no, but that, but those were the arguments, right? Um, and that this this was the thing 
it's fun to look back and think that it was like the distant past, but what was it like eight years ago that the United States said gay people can get married as a country? Um, so it was less than 10, right? Didn't this like just happen? Um, anyway, everyone who's listening to this remember, can, can look, can remember a time when gay marriage wasn't federally recognized in the United States. In all and, states, it was 2015 or yeah. 2015? Yep. Yeah, that's that's weird. You'd think it'd be like 1915, right? Well, some it of the states been. had it legal and some didn't. And yeah. Like, that, it kept being fought over. But yeah, it wasn't federally recognized as a as a country. But I bring that up because uh, those were like the stupid arguments you hear from people. It's like, well, it's eroding the institution of marriage. But then the question just becomes like, well, then so fucking what? <laughs> like, even if that's true, which let's just pretend it is, what's the harm in that? And I think that Bentham gets credit for, for being able to keep his eye on the ball, right? Like, you know, if it's what's the harm, and he, he probably, I mean, he grew up in, you know, a society that was way more homophobic than ours, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that uh, being a homosexual would, like, get you uh, sterilized or locked up in a mental hospital. Yeah, I or, mean. you know, going if, through conversion therapy that didn't work. Yeah. So I, I'm just thinking, like, you know, credit to him for... Uh, you know, following his conclusions or following the ideas to their to their actual conclusions, even if they went against things that he might have actually been raised to believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, it makes sense to like hold him up in the same way one might hold up Darwin and say like, look, here's somebody who came up with a really cool, interesting idea and followed it to a conclusion that challenged society, right? Yeah. Um, and there's plenty of those in philosophy too. Right? It's it's easy to make fun of Platonic ideas of virtue or like, yeah, I don't know. Like he thought that there were actual like physical constructs of like trust <laughs> and love and stuff like that, but there's uh, plenty of stuff that was said right the first time, and I think has rightfully been passed down and continues to be useful wisdom or insights nowadays. That's a good hot take. I like it. It's, it's very, it's very, <laughs> it's a very warm take. But you know, um, no, I, I, I like I like what you're saying there too. Um, Just say it's a take. <laughs> it's a take. And. Uh, I don't know. I feel like we're we're both sort of playing devil's advocate occasionally here. I, I I don't have like terribly strong insights or opinions into any of this, which is kind of why I wanted to talk about it because I read it and I was like, I don't really. I was trying to pick a topic since Indiash was gone and he often comes up with a lot of our topics, but there were a few that I was like, I have. I guess I have opinions about this or like. I want to explore this, but this one, I, I it like kind of bugged me and I, I kept it open at a tab for a while because I realized that I didn't know what to think about it and that I wanted to talk about it with somebody. So now I feel like I have more, more formed opinions. I'm really glad you brought it up too. Yeah. At the very least, I think that, um, cause I didn't read this until last night or this morning and yeah, I, I walked away from reading it. I'm like, I don't think this makes this, this doesn't jam. And, uh, you know, I think that I, I've been able, hopefully at least to myself, articulate why. And I think it's because these these category distinctions seem artificial to me. Yeah. Um, I, was, I, I wouldn't yeah, have done it that way. I started defending the categories more just as uh, exercise, but uh, I also feel like this these categories could be improved upon. But I think there's value also in like when someone's writing about a thing um, for the first time or for their first time to start to try to understand it by breaking it down into sometimes just you know, fake models, fake categories. And then as you continue to work with that model or discuss that with other people, then you can start to shift it. Cause like, Stephen, if you were to come up with categories of intellectual generalists, like 
off the top of your head, what kinds of categories would you have? I'm just asking as sort of a troll because I, I was trying to do that earlier to see if I could just quickly throw out some. Because it's easy to say, oh, I don't know if this is right, but then it's much harder to say, and here's what I would do instead. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, that that's what I've been trying to meander around this whole time. And like, um, again, I think that a, a necessary condition is that they be in some way public, a public figure. Um, you know, people who don't buy, you know, popular science books probably still know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is because he, you know, hosted Cosmos for three years on primetime Fox, right? He's been all over the place. Yeah. So like, but he, but he's not a, he might be something of a generalist, but he's more of an, ast- he's just a, you know, scientist slash astrophysicist, right? I've like, heard him talk on other topics with... Not intelligently, though. <laughs> He'll say things like, just unplug the AI. <laughs> like, I mean, uh, that, that's a bad example. I've I'm teasing. Like, yeah, he seems to have a pretty actually solid body of knowledge um, yeah. about other fields of science. And he does also strike me as, maybe with the exception of that AI one, uh, the kind of person who would uh, caveat, like, I'm not, you know, a Vulcanist, but <laughs> my understanding is this. And to be clear, and to reiterate, he did walk, he did uh, change his mind on the AI thing. I just brought that up as a joke. Hell yeah. But, um, Changing your mind in public. Yeah. But um you know it maybe bill nye you know he's also so, i don't he, i guess now we just have to like how how vague do you does your knowledge have to be for you to be a generalist i think of bill nye as a as a public scientist right or a science communicator um sure he has other opinions on stuff i'm sure he does but that's not what most of us know him for um so yeah being publicly uh available in some way Again, I think a philosopher or polymath could be operating completely silently in their basement and they'd still be a philosopher and polymath, but nobody would know, so they're not helping steer society. So they're not a generalist? Or are you, are you trying to come up with categories for... Because I think Hansen came up with, here's three categories that intellectual generalists fall into. Oh, okay. And then, he, like, and here's the, the problem that we're trying to see if they could fix. Okay, yes, yeah, so those are two different questions. So different kinds of generalists... I don't think a public intellectual is a generalist. I don't think a philosopher is a generalist. Only a polymath is a generalist, right? Um, like a philosopher could only know everything about utilitarianism. And that's like, that's their whole domain of knowledge. A public intellectual, quote unquote, could be Joe Rogan, who doesn't know anything about anything. Um, maybe he wouldn't describe himself as a public intellectual, but Jordan Peterson would. Other category could be a generalist, but they don't, they're not necessarily one. Um it really depends on, you know, if you're a philosopher who, yeah, kind of a philosopher is also a polymath. Yeah, I guess polymaths are kind of the one true intellectual generalist. Yeah, so phrase, phrasing the question that way, it's like it's setting itself up to say, well, and here's the right answer, right? It's which, the person it who was. It's the person who is the generalist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, but which it was setting it up that way. Yeah. Not, not saying that that was uh, definitely yeah. the right answer, but... But like it convinced I said, I, me, or at least it convinced me that um, his argument that we should fund polymaths more, or... Uh, they have a what was it a university department um yeah a university department of generalists and he, i think he just wants that so he can have another job at his <laughs> university in, in a way we kind of do that and I, i'm giving him a hard he time should have that though yeah no he's a polymath i would say totally no and I, I think that um well and he even talked about too you know attending college lots of college courses for courses that he didn't pay to attend mm. and so he he is educated on tons of stuff formally right he's just not credentialed um the uh but in, in a way we are sort of doing that with other institutions like miri or the future for humanity institute or whatever right like 
they have their specific focuses, but the, you know, the future for humanity Institute has a wide breadth of, of things that it covers, right? Mm-hmm. Everything from meteor impacts to plagues to yeah, which super, super intelligence, a wide range of fields. Yeah. So that, that's almost like funding polymath, uh, endeavors. Polymathy. 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 That's, that's how I was trying to say it in my head. It's perfect. <laughs> All right, I'm going to call it Polymathy from now on. It um, sounds like, I don't know, it reminds me of something, and I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it. Sounds like polygamy. Okay, maybe that was what I was thinking of. Yeah, po- Polymathy. <laughs> I was thinking of like something religious. Or... Um, it also sounds like a funny way to say the name Timothy. That sounds like Jimothy. Is Jimothy. That, yeah. <laughs> Pretend like Jim is short for Jimothy. Uh, American Dad, they say over and over, and I think it's like confirmed that Stan is short for Staniel. <laughs> uh, gotta love it anyway uh i don't have much else to say on this one how about you no pretty much done um we could thank patreon i think we should um so this week or this bye week uh we are thanking jason musgrave fuck yeah jason and big high five yes i also send you a big high five um I never know what to say in this part of the podcast. I just find it excellent. The excellence, like, sort of overwhelming sometimes that people are giving us money for doing this thing and that they get value out of it. Overwhelming is a good word for my my response to it too. <laughs> Only Inyash can keep his head under this situation. Um, but no, it is. It's a. Uh, it's valuable. We appreciate it. Um, it really and... gives me motivation. Not even just doing the podcast, but in the rest of my life, like when my life's kind of a mess sometimes. Currently, it's like in one of those messy states. And uh, when I'm like down in the dumps, I can be like, I can remember nice emails that people have sent us about how much they like the podcast and how one of the subjects helped them or taught them something new. And that's just like all the warm fuzzies. I like it. Yeah. Um, It's yeah. I, I can't say it eloquently, but you rock, and that's all that anyone needs to know. Um, other than that, we talked about what we're reading next week for Less Wrong Posts, mm-hmm. or next episode. So I say we just kind of trail off like we had, a, like we like we really planned how to end the episode. What do you think? Yeah. It's a very graceful way to, to, to stop just... and tell people to come back in a couple weeks. Yeah. Yeah, we'll find some way to communicate that. We'll and slowly, slowly fade. go away. <laughs> all right, see y'all in a couple weeks. Bye.